Hi there, my name is Jeffrey Chuck Norris, and I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for being a listener and tuning into today's episode. I also want to give fair warning that there are some really deep themes in this episode, such as domestic violence and suicide slash self-harm. If these are subjects that you are not comfortable listening to, I completely understand and support you in your decision to move on to another episode. I have 28 other wonderful episodes for you to listen to. The month of October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I thought it very appropriate to go ahead and discuss a movie like this on the show. It's also important to me to be respectful of my listeners and the things that may cause them agony or pain. So again, please do not continue listening to this episode unless you are prepared to listen to those deep, dark themes that will be discussed. If you are continuing on, great. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you enjoy the show. See? You're in there? Yep. That door's been locked all night. How is it that you can just walk up and open it when I couldn't? Isn't that strange to you? Yeah, it is. There's someone sitting in that chair. See it? Look at it. It's him. I know it is. Uh, you, you want me to check? All right, guys, welcome back to another wonderful episode of Chuck Goes to the Movies, where we talk about different films or filmmakers that impact our lives or influence our love for movies. And today I'm joined by a fellow movie lover. He is one third of a host team on a wonderful show called Porcelain Peak, and he's here to talk about a fantastic movie called The Invisible Man from 2020, the newest movie I've ever talked about on this show. So I'm actually quite excited about this. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I think a uh, wonderful show is a bit strong um, <laughs> for us, but uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, this is awesome. Um, I look for any opportunity. Anybody who knows me is already annoyed about this fact to talk about The Invisible Man. Um, and uh, this is exciting for a couple of reasons. One, I've been waiting for I don't know how long now at this point to be on your show. Um, I think since I first heard it, I was like, I have to be on this show. This is awesome. And then uh, also, this is my first guest spot without my co-host. So it's kind of, I, I really feel like it's an evil dead situation where I've cut off my uh, possessed limbs, <laughs> right? And now I'm working with my chainsaw hand. 
it's really funny that you actually bring up the whole Evil Dead experience or you know the Evil Dead idea because that's exactly what I'm going to be talking about with the guys over at a podcast on Elm Street for their uh, horror special. And I see you're joining them as well, so that's really exciting. Yeah, um, you stole the the one that I, I would have immediately gone to for that conversation. Yeah, my, my brain immediately went to Evil Dead because I love the shit out of that remake um, and obviously love the original and the second one, uh, Army of Darkness. I'm hit or miss on, but um, <laughs> yeah, and I know that's a controversial opinion, but yeah, I'm joining them for the original Maniac and the Elijah Wood Maniac, uh, which I actually had not seen until recently, and I decided to do it with them, uh, knowing that it would be kind of my f- my first watch of both movies, so it'll be an interesting experience. That's how I'm going into Evil Dead 2. Believe it or not, I've never actually seen Evil Dead 2. Oh, wow. So um, I will be seeing it for the first time for my note-taking, so it'll be a true genuine genuine experience uh, for myself and for all the listeners out there. Yeah, I'm envious that you get to see that for the first time. It's one of those, uh, I wish I could eternal sunshine my brain and watch <laughs> Evil, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 for the first time. Uh, but, uh, you know, so like you said, we're uh, you're part of a trio of hosts for Porcelain Peak. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your show and what y'all do over there? Yeah, my name is Anthony, and uh, over at Porcelain Peak, my really, really long, good, longtime friends, uh, John and Anthony, joined me to basically dissect everything horror and science fiction. Uh, we started the podcast about two years ago at this point. They started the podcast, um, and then I joined at the start of season two. Um, and then our, I don't know when this episode is going to come out, but by the time it comes out, we will probably have launched our season three. Uh, for season three, we're going to be talking about. 31 horror movies um, based around different themes. So we're pretty excited about that. But yeah, we just sit around, shoot the shit, tell news, uh, get really <laughs> get really over competitive about trivia, I as you probably know from portion. listening. Yeah, I know. It's like we it, it's I tell everybody now we for the longest time thought that we would cut trivia because it was just something that we thought we love trivia and nobody else cares about it. And then now that the show actually has, uh, you know, a small audience everybody comes to us immediately and is like, dude, the trivia is my favorite part. I'm always screaming at my car radio or, you know, whatever. Um, and so we've just leaned into the trivia and now we'll even do it with, uh, on the episode we just did with the two directors from the movie hosts, uh, we had them play trivia That's <laughs> and they were awesome. not prepared. They were not prepared, but they did pretty well. So um, we like to spring stuff like that on them too, like with your questions. <laughs> okay. So I have to actually interrupt your idea here real quick. Uh, for those of y'all who are listening, we're doing this via Zoom right now, and I can see this tattoo on Anthony's arm, the dark mark. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I'm in love with that. I'm a huge Harry Potter nerd, so that is that is awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I have that, and then I have uh, Deathly yeah. Hallows on this arm, yeah. That is awesome. Um, yeah, we're all huge Harry Potter fans on the show, and uh, Anthony and I, or Tone and I, just recently... Um, Got the, well recently, as in a couple of years ago, got the Deathly Hallows tattoo. So he has one too on um, his arm, and then the the dark mark was my first tattoo. So that's awesome. Like ten years ago, <laughs> and I've gotten a lot more since then. <laughs> <laughs> that's just the one that's standing out to me as I keep seeing that arm 
Uh, yeah. Because I got another little window kind of blocking the other part of you, so I only get to see that arm. Um, oh, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, Porcelain Peak is a, it's a fantastic show. For those of y'all who haven't had the chance to check it out yet, I highly encourage y'all to go check it out. I'm really glad I discovered them. They talk about, like you said, everything from horror to science fiction. Y'all did a fun little thing over the summer. Uh, summer camp that was just that was a lot of fun to listen to and y'all talked about some really amazing things during that sequence and uh, they also did an entire show based off something I suggested to them uh, the vampire cult episode so go check that out please it's a lot of fun yeah we were super excited about that idea because we had no idea how absolutely bonkers that entire story was mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so delving into that I was just eating up all of the the weird ass facts about it but um yeah, we like to mix it up and do different things, cover things like foreign films, do broader discussions about genre tropes and things like that. So we don't we don't tend to sit down and just break a movie down beat by beat. And we tend to get kind of more enjoyment out of these broader topics and, and kind of discussing the bigger themes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a fantastic show. I look forward to every episode, so I can't wait to see what season three has to offer. It's going to be a good one. Yes, sir. All right. So I always like to ask my guests a question that they are unprepared for. So, sir, are you ready for your question? Uh, not even slightly, but go ahead, shoot. Okay, I promise you it's not really going to be that bad. I used to throw some real zingers at people. So, you come from a horror lover background. You know horror movies, sci-fi, stuff like that. So, out of, if we're going to remove those two genres of movies from the equation, what is your favorite genre of movie to watch? Oh, God. I knew I wasn't prepared for this question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, in all honesty, uh, I don't really watch too much else besides horror and sci-fi these days. Um, so it makes the question harder to answer. But um, I would say when I was watching a lot more broader stuff, um, I mean, I don't want to say something like thriller because it's a little bit too horror adjacent. Mm-hmm. Um, I like black comedies. Okay. Like really, really, like really, really uh, quirky black comedies. Give us an example. Um, I would say uh, the last one that I saw that I thought was really good was Bernie, the one with Jack Black. Oh yeah, the yeah, yeah. Richard Linklater movie. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Um, I say I would say that probably my favorite dark comedy of all time would be something like Young Frankenstein. Uh-huh. I would consider a dark comedy. Yes. Um, which I know a lot of people say, oh, that's horror. You're cheating. But cut me some slack, guys. Okay, like I said, <laughs> it's all I ever do. Um. And then one that I just watched a couple nights ago on Shudder, if anybody wants a, little, a bit more current recommendation, um, there's a movie called Scare Me that just came out that I went into expecting it to be a horror movie and it ended up being a lot more comedy. And I really, really enjoyed it. About two writers in a cabin trying to scare each other all night with scary stories. Um, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I dug it a lot and it immediate, immediately wanted me or made me want to go to a cabin with my co-hosts and do the exact same thing for an episode. So I'm thinking of trying to uh, harass them into going and doing a scary stories, like out in a cabin in the woods or something. That would be uh, brilliant. Yeah. When all the forests stop burning down here in California, Oh man, I know. Yeah. Out there in California, y'all are staying safe, right? How, like it's how far away is it from you? We're lucky here in the Valley. It's not too bad. Um, we're in the central Valley in California. Um, the majority of the devastation is coming from, north of us and south of us mm. so we're basically surrounded by it and we're getting all of the smoke mm. funneling down so right now i would show you what it looks like outside but it i mean it would be like you had just solved the lament configuration it looks like hell out there <laughs> um it really does wow. i opened my i opened my door yesterday my front door to my house and uh it was just like barbecue smell like just the air 
pouring and it was ridiculous. But anywho, we're here to talk about fictional horror, not actual horror. <laughs> well, I, I like your choices there for a uh, black comedy. I will definitely agree with you that Young Frankenstein is a comedy and not a horror. It's based off a horror idea. You know, obviously Frankenstein, his monster and stuff like that. But there's really nothing horrifying about this movie whatsoever. It is brilliantly uh, humorous. I mean, Mel Brooks is a yeah. genius. Yeah, I was going to say that's basically the same um, same thing you can say about most Mel Brooks stuff where it's like I wouldn't call Blazing Saddles really a Western. <laughs> it's it, it's a Western homage and I wouldn't call something like Spaceballs a science fiction movie. It's a science fiction homage through comedy. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, that's a really good thing to point out there because um, even rewatching Young Frankenstein like a week ago, I was I forgot how funny it was. I was just dying. So the name is Frankenstein. <laughs> One of those more quotable than almost every line in the original Frankenstein besides It's Alive. <laughs> All right. So we are here to talk about The Invisible Man 2020s. Uh, I don't want to call it a dark universe film. It was, I guess it's part of the dark universe, but not part a of the shared universe that they were trying to establish. Yeah, it's just one of those very convoluted things that has happened with movie studios since the Marvel Cinematic Universe took off. Yeah. Um, and, and originally I guess Johnny Depp, cause it came out that cast photo mm -hmm. that had like Javier Bardem and Johnny Depp and Russell Crowe and all of them just sitting in a room. <laughs> it was the most boring way to tease like a horror franchise, um, that I've ever seen. And I was thinking, why would you cast Johnny Depp as an invisible character? Um, so already, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking whatever I could take this or leave this. I didn't even watch the mummy. I had zero interest. Um, and so when this rolled around, my first thought was grown, you know, remake of a obviously classic universal monster movie. Yes. Um, and, and, and it's one of the first ones I ever saw that got me into horror movies. I saw invisible man in class when I was in like third grade. So for me, it was a big deal. And I was very nervous about this 2020 remake um, because of everything that had happened with that dark universe. Mm -hmm. And because, the only thing that was making me think, well, the only two things that were making me think this is going to rock were Lee Winnell and Elizabeth Moss. Yes, absolutely. And uh, brilliant. The way that Lee Winnell spun the story to modernize it, but still tap into some of the original themes of the Invisible Man. Great. And Elizabeth Moss is just perfect in every way. She really yeah, is. <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah. Um, so some film facts about The Invisible Man. So it was released February 28th of this year, 2020, right before Rona really took off. It, so coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 was already a thing that the world was watching. But let's just say that it really didn't hit the United States until March. I mean, at this time, I was already I was still traveling to Texas uh, when this movie came out. So we hadn't had all the restrictions and stuff. Uh, yeah, but because of coronavirus, it did take a hit at the box office. So it had a $7 million estimated budget. Uh, it did $28.2 million its opening weekend, only did $64.9 million domestic, and then $137.7 million worldwide. So it did. it's one of the first movies of 2020 to be hit hard by, or one of the first mainstream movies of 2020 to be hit hard by the COVID-19 experience uh and it's such a shame it had so much potential to be the mega hit at the box office yeah and and it's so sad to see this happen to so many movies um and especially one where you know i we were lucky enough to see it in theaters before this all happened and and, and that's another reason why 
this movie was so important to us and why I, I love talking about it is because it's a really good memory now of a time when theaters were still open mm -hmm. and we could still go and do that. Um, I had to drive an hour recently to go see Tenet at a completely empty movie theater because I was able to find one about an hour from us. Um, so I was able to finally go to the movies again. But up until that point, it had been probably in Invisible Man had been the last thing I had seen in theaters, maybe. Um, so yeah, the, the fact that this didn't do better is a shame. At the same time, though, it was a bit trendsetting in terms of being one of the first movies to go to a streaming uh, kind of like rental format yes. to cope with to cope with the, the COVID stuff and the, what was happening to movies. Um, and at the time, I was itching to watch it again. So I was all for <laughs> buying it again, streaming and watching it. Yeah, that was how I was able to watch it. My brother uh, put it on his Voodoo account and I fell in love with it from there. So for Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 91% critic rating, certified fresh, and has an 88% audience score. I uh, just want to... I know I always say we don't like to put a lot of stock into what critics have to say, but I always like to read at least a couple of them. So Richard Roper actually liked the movie. He said, in this heart-stopping update, the gotcha moments really do surprise. He gave it a 3.5 out of 4 stars. And then the other one I wanted to point out was from... Uh, Scott Tobias from NPR. Winnell has succeeded by de-emphasizing blockbuster effects and engaging with an old monster in a new way. He's created an invisible man for 2020 while still embracing the foundational terrors of 1933. And I think that is the most accurate critique you can give this movie. That's poetry right there. It really is. Um, see, yeah, see, all critics aren't shit yeah that's very like, true know, there's uh, coming from somebody who uh my, my job is basically crit uh critiquing movies but <laughs> <laughs> do you have any other uh interesting film facts or anything like that before we really dive into the meat and potatoes of this movie yeah i mean i guess a, a bit of, about just what i know from listening to interviews with lee winnell about kind of how this project came to be okay um like you would like you had referenced earlier, there was this dark universe that was supposed to have existed with Universal. Um, they obviously tanked that with the mummy and we're kind of unsure what the plans were. When Lee Winnell got the call to come talk with Universal and Blumhouse, he had no idea what it was for. Um, and when he went in, they said, we want to do Invisible Man, but we want you to, do you have an idea for it? And so basically with Blumhouse giving him creative control he was able to do whatever he wanted with the idea which i think is what works so well about this being a reimagining as opposed to just a straightforward remake of the original invisible man there's very little that's similar outside of an invisible man <laughs> and a couple of and a few and some references and things uh between these two movies so i think anybody who was nervous that this was going to be a retread was probably very pleasantly surprised and i know lee winnell never wanted to do a retread of the original movie he wanted to do something completely different um, so that's kind of the genesis of this. And then working with Blumhouse, he said that he was very inspired by paranormal activity, which you can see kind of referenced throughout this movie mm -hmm. to do. And then obviously Lee Winnell coming from a long background of low budget things like Saw, obviously it's probably what he's up until this point most well known for with James Wan um, as a Saw franchise, a lot of uh, writing and then some pretty terrible acting in that original Saw movie. <laughs> love you, Lee Winnell. Love you lots, but... Don't think acting's your strong suit. Let's go ahead and stick to directing. Absolutely agree. <laughs> yeah, that's all I had. We can go ahead and get into the, uh, as you said, meat and potatoes. Sweet. All right. So the whole reason we talk 
on this show, the whole creation of this show is to talk about how movies have impacted our lives or influenced our love of other movies. So how has this movie done that for you? Has it impacted your life in any way or influenced your love of this type of movie or other movies like this? This is a question that I'm actually entirely prepared for because um, th this movie actually influenced my life in the fact that it's probably a big part of the reason why we're still doing the podcast. We had taken a, a hiatus at the end of last year, and we were not even sure at the time because of things that were going on in our individual lives, whether we were going to be able to get the podcast back together. Um, but we knew that we wanted to still go see horror movies together. So we went to see Invisible Man and we were so blown away by it that when we walked out of the theater, we turned to each other and we said, hey, uh, we, we got to do an episode on this. And so we came out of, I think, what at the time was a two a month long hiatus and did a special episode for Invisible Man. And we had so much fun doing it that we agreed, hey, we're going to take like one more month and we're going to get back into it. And we have kept that ball rolling even faster than it ever did since then. Um, so in terms of yeah, so in terms of that, I mean, that's that's the biggest part. It's, it's the biggest way that it's impacted my life uh, in terms of my enjoyment of movies. One, it made me even more of a diehard Lee Winnell fan than I already was. So I went back and rewatched everything that he's written or directed. Uh, up, you know, up to Insidious 3, which I am iffy on, but I enjoy some parts of that. Uh, but going through like the Saw films that he that he wrote, going through that and then Upgrade is one of my favorite sci-fi films of the last couple of years. So going through that and picking out the similar the similarities between that and Invisible Man. Um, for me, it's just kind of made me want to pick apart his movies even more. Nice. I haven't seen Upgrade yet. I've heard everybody talk about it and I just need to sit Ooh. down and watch it. See, I'm not going to berate you about that because I'm just excited that you have that as a treat to kind of like have in your back pocket for just maybe <laughs> maybe maybe just like a really shitty day where you're just like, I need a movie that's going to make me feel just turned up to 11, just like super jazzed and pumped up, ready to stab something. It's like, uh, <laughs> I really uh, it's one of those movies that I I I feel like maybe I have to kind of make sure I'm in the right mindset to sit down. You know, I just can't turn on a movie and enjoy it. I've got to be in a mindset for a particular type of movie in order to really sit down and enjoy it. So I know I got to be in the mood for something of that caliber. So like uh, a podcast on Elm Street and a horror movie uh, crew, they uh, just did an episode recently on The Terrifier or Terrifier mm -hmm. or whatever it's called. Yeah, I think I don't think there's a the I don't do clowns. <laughs> I fucking yeah, hate clowns. I, I know I know that well enough from listening to your episodes. Yeah. Uh so I I had to really psych myself up to sit down and watch this movie and it turned out that I really didn't find it as terrifying as it was gross. <laughs> it was just a really gross movie. Um yeah. I don't I don't know if the movie really should be called Terrifier. It really should just be called yeah, like a Brody or something yeah, like that. Yeah. It, it was just Brody the clown. But um yeah, the, there are certain movies that I got psyched myself up for, but I really am excited to actually sit down and watch this movie. I I like Lee Winnell, and of course, I like the uh, main actor that's in this movie, uh, Logan Marshall Green. Mm -hmm. Did I say his name right? Logan Marshall Green? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we we have this exact argument every time he gets brought up in conversation. Because we, we'll be talking about The Invitation, which he was in, or we'll be talking about Upgrade or something, mm -hmm. and we'll go, David Gordon Marshall? <laughs> Marshall? Marshall Herschel Lewis. Yeah. And then we, we're just, yeah. Tom Hardy's twin. Let's just call him that. It, yeah. I, I just always call him diet Tom Hardy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not And that's not at all. That is not at all a shot at this man's acting because I think he's, I think he's fantastic in the movies that I've seen him in. I think he's going places. 
but they may be the same places that Tom Hardy is going. <laughs> he may he may live his career Tom Hardy adjacent. May, maybe it's Tom Hardy and he just doesn't want to say. You know, it's like yeah. he wants a certain career as Tom Hardy and wants a certain career as Logan Marshall Green. Uh, one where he's wearing a mask and one where he's not. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm going to have to say that this movie more influenced me than impacted my life. So I really love psychological thrillers to begin with. Uh, and that's what I'm really going to classify this movie as. It's got its horror elements, definitely. But it's, it plays with your mind so much all throughout the film. Mm -hmm. You really think something is about to happen. And then, bam, they throw something else at you. Uh, just a lot of misdirection throughout this film. And I really feel like that has made me appreciate the subtle either subtle or blatant misdirections that uh, screenwriters and directors put into their movies because they that's where the horror really comes in. You really feel like you're settling into this idea and then wham blow you it just blows your mind and you're you're lost again. And that's where I feel like certain movies and I know a lot of people don't agree with me on this, but that's where I feel like movies like Get Out and um other uh recent quote unquote horror movies have failed where I when I sat down and watched Get Out, it was it captured my attention, but it was predictable. It's like I kept guessing what was gonna come and kept guessing what was gonna come. So it lost that it lost that intrigue, that thrill for me. But with a movie like this, I went into it with a whole mindset. Like I knew what was gonna happen. I knew this, I knew that, and then they just they threw it all out the window and said, nope, this is exact. This is what's actually going to happen. Yeah. And uh, that's what I think makes Lee Winnell brilliant. And that's what makes the acting in this brilliant as well. Elizabeth Moss killed it the entire time. Uh, oh, absolutely. And I love that it brings awareness to something that is very, very concerning in the world. And that's domestic violence. And it's really bringing that to light and showing you the ins and outs of a relationship and not just what's happening during that relationship, but the aftermath of it as well. I mean, look how crazy she is based off of just her experiences with Adrian throughout this whole film It is really messed with her brain. And it carries a very personal thing for me because I've got a close friend who's been on the show before, Courtney. She's joined me for the Cloverfield episodes. She is a domestic abuse survivor. And we've talked about this a lot. I don't think she's seen this film yet. Courtney, correct me if you're listening to this uh, because of all the triggers that are going to be in and stuff like that. But I remember meeting her for breakfast one day before watching this movie. And I shared with her my thought about what the movie was going to be and she thought it was actually a pretty brilliant thought considering uh the themes of domestic violence in it i said what if he's dead and everything that's happening to her is just happening to her in her head it's just all the psychological <laughs> effects of what happened afterwards obviously that yeah. got flipped on me but mm -hmm. uh, I was like, I really feel like that's what the movie's going to be about. It's just all the psychological terror of what happened to her in that relationship. And it's it finally just drives her to imagining these things and then causing harm to herself and others. And that's the invisible man, the spirit of what happened to her. Yeah, and there's a wonderful quote. Uh, and, and and I know we'll get to quotes, but that, that I just want to bring this up because mm -hmm. it ties so nicely into what you were just saying. But there's one point in the movie where the brother says something along the lines of uh, it's it's not so impressive that he invented a suit that made him invisible. 
it's more that he convinced you that he did that. He convinced you that he's still around, that he's invisible. The fact that he was able to worm into her brain. And there's a lot of lines like that in the movie that really solidify that idea that a lot of what's going on could potentially be in her mind. And you're not really sure the movie toes the line. When you go to an invisible man movie, an invisible man movie, you can be pretty certain that there's going to actually be an invisible man. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was never convinced at any point that it wasn't going to have an invisible man big thing at the end. Uh, But I wouldn't have been upset if the reveal at the end had been something along the lines of what you had said. Um, But then going back to what you were saying about this entire premise in general, that's something that uh, the directors on our recent episode said was that they love tackling horror movies from the angle of let's take a very simple universal concept that most people can understand and then use the theatrics of horror or a thriller uh, to tell that story in a way that connects with people maybe in a, in a fashion that they hadn't thought of. So for this, yeah, domestic violence, I feel like can relate to so many people to the point, like you said, to the, to where they may maybe don't even want to watch this movie. I know I was seeing it in trivia also that there were a lot of people who refused to watch it specifically because they had been through very similar situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, just having been through, you know, issues, especially with the internet now with, uh, you know, cyber bullying or cyber stalking yeah. or having um, crazy ex-girlfriends who <laughs> ha- have, have done weird stalkery stuff. I can relate to that idea of, of somebody trying to get into your head and somebody being there without actually being there. Like you feel that they are invading your life, but you can't see them anywhere. Yeah. Um, and, and that's such a terrifying idea, even if you're not somebody who has yourself been through domestic violence. Uh, I think that's the most, obviously the most genius part of this entire movie is that he decided to take that angle. And, and a lot of the decisions he made in this movie were what, what I would say so simple, but so brilliant. That's what blew me away the entire time as I was thinking, man, how did I not think of this for the invisible man? Mm-hmm. You know, how did I not think of the invisible man being a perfect analog for uh, privacy issues with technology and then also with domestic violence, obviously uh, to me, that was like, Oh, duh. And then there's just so much about this movie where I thought, Oh yeah, duh. I totally would have done the same thing if I was remaking the invisible man. And then I have to correct myself because I'm not Lee Winnell and I'm not <laughs> a successful feature film writer director. So, well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up too, because I thought about that as well. So, you know, it, it, like you said, it's the perfect thing for, especially nowadays in 2020 where we are, Completely, and I'll use the word, we are completely controlled by the technology that is in our lives right now. We all rely on our computers, our smartphones, internet to just do basic tasks throughout the day. So it's not a completely invalid thought that that can be perverted in such a way to terrorize us or be a horrific situation in our lives. But you, like you said, you would have never really thought about that from an invisible man standpoint well let's look back at you know how the invisible man has been projected throughout uh hollywood so obviously back to the days of the uh, monster universe over at universal studios you had the invisible man wolfman dracula frankenstein all that but you know that's all started back in 1933 the next big invisible man movie which technically didn't have anything to do with the invisible man it's called memoirs of an invisible man with chevy chase did you ever see that I don't believe so, no. I remember watching that as a kid. Um, I've definitely heard about it. It's just, I, I have definitely not gone and seen like all of the random Invisible Man <laughs> spinoffs and yeah. sequels because it's it's much like Dracula in that if you try to go down that rabbit hole, you're going to be stuck for a long time. Absolutely. 
But, you know, it, it, with each iteration of the quote-unquote Invisible Man idea, it each brought something new to it. So, like, with the memoirs of the Invisible Man, it was a, it was a, a catastrophic, catastrophic accident at his place of work. And it caused him and everything around him to disappear. So it affected him in such a special way. So the clothes he was wearing at the time and things like that, that went invisible. The building he was in went invisible and stuff like that. And so he basically had to go around, you know, he wore clothes and stuff like that. So you could see him as long as he was wearing clothes that he wasn't wearing at the time he turned invisible. So it just brought a different perspective for the invisible man that way. And then you had 2000's Hollow Man with Kevin Bacon. Oh, yeah. Kevin P. Bacon. Kevin Bacon. Um, <laughs> and that tried to bring in a little bit of a horror standpoint, you know, how he was using his power of invisibility to, uh, for nefarious reasons and things like that. But uh, it really, again, wasn't more of a technological standpoint because, I mean, let's look at this, 1933, 1992. I mean, 2000, that was, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to believe that I'm going to say this. 20 years ago in 2000, we still had not peaked Jeez. as a technological society. And, yeah. you know, just to think 20 years ago, that was the stone age of technology almost. Um, how much of it has advanced in just the last few decades and how much more it's going to advance moving forward. So we would have never had an idea to use technology as a plot point in an invisible man movie and again that's what makes this particular movie very unique and very appropriate for the time period that it is set in yeah and that's something that i wasn't i wasn't sure the angle it was going to take because i i tried my best to treat the invisible man trailers like they were invisible <laughs> and 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 not watch them and i know a lot, i know a lot of people were pissed because they felt the trailers had spoiled the whole movie and then it turned out much in the fashion of this entire movie a lot of it was misdirection. A lot of it is scenes and things that don't actually happen in the movie, yeah. which I always love when I always love when people decide to do that. Um, I don't watch movie trailers for a specific reason. I want to watch the movie usually. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the the fact that he decided to take uh, like a science fiction approach as opposed to a science fantasy approach, yeah. um, I would say would be kind of the, the distinction there. Well, this may have seemed more science fiction to have this f magic potion formula back when the original Invisible Man was written, you know, back in the day when H.G. Wells would have been getting into the science that existed at that time, mm -hmm. um, you know, he would have gone with what he knew. And it's, there's a little bit of pseudoscience there. And there's a bit of a, you know, there's a lot of a suspension of disbelief you have to d use in order for that movie to obviously work. Uh, in this, you see that suit. And in my mind, Im immediately, I was like, oh, there's a ton of stuff that already exists that's in the works for the military that we've heard of. Yeah camouflage suits and things like that i mean he literally just took something from you know a youtube uh vox video or like a yeah or like a new some news thing he saw and was like perfect invisible man movie go <laughs> <laughs> this has just been a great great movie to introduce in 2020 and i really feel like as uh we like I said, continue to move forward uh, and advance in our technology and stuff like that. And uh, as we move forward as a society where, you know, we're constantly talking about privacy issues, um, we're becoming more aware of domestic violence issues, we're talking about, um, you know, 
police matters and stuff like that not to get too political or anything on this uh particular episode but i feel like a lot nah man fuck the system (laughs) (laughs) Uh, a lot of the themes that we saw in this movie are you know things that are going to just continue to translate um and carry on as time progresses and you know they did leave it open they left it open there at the end for possible sequels so maybe as Maybe as Lee Winnell or Bloomhouse see how uh, life is kind of progressing or we, the state of America is progressing, maybe they will be able to develop more storylines that will not seem so far-fetched and so far out there that can continue that uh, the audience members can relate to and still create fresh stories for us. So we'll see. Yeah, I think, I think if we really love a movie on the show, we're always very, uh, we're always very adamant that we don't want a sequel. I don't want a sequel. Yeah, and I and I don't in this case, but I know Elizabeth Moss has said recently um, in interviews, I think for her movie Shirley, um, that she would be completely on board since the movie was left open ended to come back for a sequel. If she's coming back, and if Winnell's coming back, then I have faith. Yeah, you know that, that those are people that I trust. Obviously, I just don't want them to blow it up into this big like global invisible man's <laughs> conspiracy or something. You know, um, but I do know that Winnell now is in talks, or last week did news on it. He was in talks to be involved with the Wolfman movie that they were doing with Ryan Gosling. I remember y'all saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we, if you want to hear our thoughts on that, we, we have an episode, but, um, yeah, I mean, again, Lee Winnell, I trust him. So whatever they decide to do in the future, as long as they, uh, keep the creative control and the talented actors, uh, then I'm, yeah, uh, we'll see. Absolutely. World's crazy. You never know what could happen. <laughs> and that's the truth. And Hollywood just always likes to keep us on our toes. So, yeah uh let's talk a little bit about the cast so i mean we've already mentioned her name a thousand times on this show so uh let's mention it again elizabeth moss uh playing the starring role as cecilia um perfect she's just absolutely amazing i all i can think of is any other role that she's ever been in she's just always gives a hundred percent she gets lost in that role you truly stop seeing elizabeth moss and you see the character that she is portraying whether it's going to be on the show Mad Men, uh whether it's in handmaid's tale invisible man or one of my favorite comedies get him to the greek oh yeah stroke the furry walls stroke the furry walls i love <laughs> that movie i also love that soundtrack uh Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But Elizabeth Moss. So she is uh, an absolutely amazing actress. She has won two Golden Globes, uh, both for her performances in uh, The Handmaid's Tale and uh, for something uh, called Top of the Lake. I've never actually seen this. It's a I've heard it's I've heard it's excellent. I know it's some sort of murder mystery show. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I haven't checked it out. But now that we're talking about Elizabeth Moss and you reminded me of it. I have to add it to my list. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that's the exact yeah. thing I thought of. I was like, I got to go find this. And she's also yeah. won two Emmys, uh, again, for Handmaid's Tale. She actually, both of them were for Handma- Handmaid's Tale. And uh, she's been uh, nominated multiple times for uh, her role in Mad Men. And she was fantastic in that. That's where I first saw her. I was a huge, huge Mad Men fan. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've really just been following her since uh, Mad Men was still on in anything that she's done. One of my favorite, favorite indie sci-fi movies that's come out in the last few years is called um, The One I Love. It's her and uh, Mark Duplass. And it's this really small little indie movie that's on, I believe, Netflix that they did a few years back. I would highly recommend it to anybody who likes kind of weird, quirky sci-fi and you enjoy those people. But yeah, um, I haven't seen Handmaid's Tale outside of a couple episodes because I 
have not yet been in the mood to depress myself like that. <laughs> but but I don't doubt that Elizabeth Moss is bre- is breathtaking as usual. Um, but yeah, I've seen her in a lot of stuff where yeah, exactly. Even in um, Us, which is a, yeah. is a kind of a recent thing that she was in that I didn't expect her to be in. You know, I dug her in that too. She so was brilliant. In when that. I yeah, and I know people don't. Uh, some people don't like her for some reason, and I'm not exactly sure why. Um, I think that she's fantastic, and I and I would say she's going places, but I think she's already at that place, and <laughs> it's just going to keep keep going up for her. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to see her. Uh, I'd love to see her do some more mainstream movies. I know she's really busy with her television career and stuff like that, but I love seeing her in Invisible Man. I love seeing her in the lead, and I really feel like she's built to be a lead actress. I mean, yeah, she carries this film. It would it wouldn't work without. No, her. no. You know, you try to. Of course, you say this all that we can say this all the time. You know, you try to picture somebody else playing this role. And it, in our minds, it doesn't work. Well, in an alternate universe or, an all, you know, somebody else is playing this role and somebody's sitting there like, oh, well, I could never imagine Elizabeth Moss playing this role. Well, luckily, yeah. we live in the universe. She does play this one. So, yeah, we are. We are the fortunate ones in the multiverse. We are. Speaking of the multiverse, uh, I'm just waiting for her to get picked up by the MCU since they're swallowing up all the talented actors in the world. It's only a matter of time before she gets picked up by something. I know it's very. I'm going to admit I'm a little I'm a little over the MCU. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that I want that because I am. I want all of my favorite people in the MCU. I would prefer if she never gets involved. Yeah. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that usually when people get these high enough profiles, like when Paul Rudd started blowing up again, he got swooped up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when it. You know, even the guy from um, Lovecraft Country right now, who is an amazing actor, the lead in that, he just got swooped for the next Ant-Man movie. So it's like, you know, when these people start to pop up on the radar, Disney is like, ah! you know, and just start... <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I agree. And that that's why I was like, you know, I, I'm kind of over the MCU, you know, now that the, the whole Infinity War saga is over, you know, I know they've got all these big plans moving forward and just like. Who uh, who else can they claim? What other lives can they claim? Well, uh, the the new news that I saw on Twitter last night is that Jamie Foxx is in talks to come back as Electro for the next Tom Holland Spider-Man movie. So I guess Spider-Verse is potentially what we're looking at. <laughs> and uh, even though I found out last night that our, our dear Prince Donald over here... Um, <laughs> has the Rona. Um, the Jamie Foxx news was the craziest thing I had heard yesterday <laughs> for sure. So yeah, that that's actually the craziest news that you could possibly tell me right now. I had no idea that Jamie Foxx was in talks to uh, reprise his role. And I mean, how does that, so is, is that the next logical step for a spot? The next Spider-Man movie is that they're really going to do the spider verse thing. Cause that's the only way he could exist in that movie. Yeah. I, I think that's probably where they're going to go because the, spider-verse movie was so successful i mean you you ask most people including me and and anyone who knows me i don't talk about um, as much about it on the show but i'm a diehard spider-man fan i've cosplayed um as spider-man he's he's my all-time favorite one of my all-time favorite just characters in general um and so for me spider-verse was perfect i know we're getting way off track here but no no um, no no, this is perfect yeah, so I thought that Spider-Verse was absolutely amazing. And as an artist, I mean, I was just nerding out about every frame of that movie. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I thought, of course, what's their next step? Try to do this in live action. And in Far From Home, 
mild spoiler, I guess, it's hinted that there's a multiverse that exists now after Thanos, but then that kind of gets tossed by the wayside as like a joke or a hoax. Yeah. But they did bring they did bring back, and I, I don't want to spoil it again for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, but they do bring back somebody from the Raimi trilogy into Far From Home um, as a cameo. So playing the same character. Well, this was perfect. Uh, we always at least try to find a way to get an MCU talk into an episode, and this was just an absolute perfect introduction. <laughs> yeah, if you ever want, if if anybody ever wants to come over and uh, hang out in in the Spider Man corner and just like uh, shoot the shit with me, shoot the webs. No, never mind. I take that back. Yeah, sounds, yeah, that sounds dirty. <clears throat> sounds, sounds dirty. Um, but yeah, if you guys want to talk, shooting over there. Yeah, if you want to talk professionally and platonically about Spider-Man, I'm 100% down. Let's do it. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So uh, before we move back over to The Invisible Man, I, I have to ask, who, so who's your favorite portrayal of um, Spider-Man? Who did it better? Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, Tom Holland. Who did it better? Oh, man. It's, it's tough. Uh, my answer is going to sound like a cop-out, I think, because I... I, I really just have things that I think I don't think any of them have done it the way that I imagine it, it would be. I think the closest portrayal, this is a cheat, the PS4 game, <laughs> the, the Spider-Man PS4 game, Yuri Lowenthal. And then the other I'm going to say also animated is Josh Keaton in the Spectacular Spider-Man TV show. Highly underrated, only ran for two seasons before it was canceled best Spider-Man property. And I grew up on the original 90s Spider-Man animated series. And and so that's saying a lot for me to say that Spectacular is better with two seasons. So if somebody, if anybody is a Spider-Man fan and hasn't checked that out, has nothing to do with the MCU at large. Um, they canceled it because they because the MCU needed some tie-ins and that wasn't related. So when Disney bought it, they canceled that show. In terms of the movies, I'll always love Tobey Maguire's because I grew up on it. I used to rewind the original one as soon as it was done until I could quote the entire movie. Nice. Um, so I have a really soft spot for him, and I think he brings the most realistic emotional turmoil that the character should have, um, and also just the dorkiness. I love Andrew Garfield for a lot of reasons as an actor. I think he gives a really strong performance, especially when he needs to be emotional. I just don't think that he really stuck it with a lot of the more, I don't want to say classic, but just a lot of the things that people would expect from Spider-Man. And then Tom Holland is just a big ball of adorable energy, isn't he? <laughs> The closest to the uh, age they are trying to achieve, that's for sure. Which I never thought in my lifetime, at, when I was thinking about my lifetime uh, seeing movies when I was like 12 years old, that I would ever see a Spider-Man that was portrayed by somebody, one, younger than me by a lot, and two, um, so, yeah, just a young Spider-Man, a kid Spider-Man. And I love it so far. I mean, so do I. It, it, so do I. Yeah. So far, I think that they're doing a really great job with that franchise. And I think everybody in that franchise is fantastic. Obviously, Zendaya's blowing up with her yeah. career. Tom Holland's blowing up. Um, so, yeah, good for them. I think they're doing really good stuff. And as a Spider Man fan, I can't tell you how excited I was when I saw that first Civil War trailer that had him in it. Oh, my God. I know. I, I, I harassed my friends endlessly, making them rewatch it and rewatch it just for that scene. So. Yeah, I'm excited to see what they do with Spider-Man. Not so much with the MCU as a whole. I think I'll mostly just be still there, like a diehard, lifelong fan of Spider-Man for every one of those movies they come out with. I think 
Alright, I'm going to have to save my Spider-Man thoughts for another time, because otherwise this will turn into a Spider-Man talk. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Let's get back to the cast here. So, uh, playing the role of Adrian, we have Oliver Jackson Cohen. Um, Dude is younger than I am. Haunting of Hill House. Haunting of... I love that show. It's. I'm going to rewatch it with my girlfriend uh, before Bly Manor comes out in a few days. Um, cause she hasn't seen the whole show and that was one of my absolute favorite shows of the last few years. It hit all the right spots for me as a horror fan. And I love Flanagan as a director. Oh yes, I mean, absolutely. You've heard us talk about Flanagan shenanigans all the time. On our <laughs> show. That's how, what we refer to his movies as, but, um, yeah, we've, we've watched, I think all of his movies and talked about them at least briefly or with entire episodes like Dr. Sleep. So I think we will probably be giving everybody our thoughts on the next Hill House or not Hill House, Bly Manor. Um, but yeah, I was so excited to see this guy in this movie because I loved him in Hill House and I hadn't seen him in literally anything else. I know. I was looking through his whole resume and I'm just like, I don't recognize any of these things. The only thing I saw that I recognized was Hill House. And, but I mean, he's been acting for a good while. His earliest credit was, what was it? Um, I guess I shouldn't say a while, 2011. So he was in uh, he was in that movie The Raven with John Cusack. Really? Yeah. I as a huge Edgar Allan Poe fan, I strayed really far away from that. Even though I'm even though I'm a also a diehard John Cusack fan, I couldn't merge the two things happily in my brain to sit down <laughs> and watch that movie. So um, I did not know he was in that. He was invisible to me. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think his breakout role was definitely the the haunting of Hill House's Luke Crane. That was uh, yeah. a phenomenal portrayal by him. And then, of course, Adrian Griffin in The Invisible Man. So he's a great, great little actor. Look forward to seeing more of him. Uh, Harriet Dyer playing the role of Emily, Cecilia's sister. Uh, I have never seen her anything before this that I recognized. But I like her in this the, movie. Yeah, she has one of those faces where the whole time I was thinking, Wait, what the hell is this lady from? Mm-hmm. And I never pinned it. And I don't think I've looked it up. Which I guess, uh, sorry to that actress, but yeah, I mean, this character is not necessarily a standout to me in the movie, um, but she's also not in it that much. And the focus isn't really on her, except in obviously a very pivotal scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I didn't think her performance was bad. I just didn't think, oh, I got to go see her and whatever the next thing is that she's in. No, um, but I, I liked her in it. I thought uh, she did a pretty good job and, you know, she didn't upstage anybody else in the film but she kind of held her own so i think that's the mark of a great um of a great uh secondary character somebody that doesn't steal the scene but still makes uh marks it as her own uh, yeah then you have aldous hodge who played um james in this movie the cop the person that was harboring cecilia after her escape i like him Oh, I love him. I think he's great. He's a great actor, and he was really good in this film. He's been in 76. uh, He's got 76 acting credits to his name. I only recognized a few of them, uh, and I recognized him from the movie What Men Want, you know, that really weird follow-up to What Women Want. Yeah, yeah. um, Can't say that that was the one that popped straight into my head uh, when I saw him. For me, it was straight out of Compton. Um, Was I what I had recognized him from because Tone and I love that movie. And then um, I guess he was in a couple of the Die Hard movies. He was uh, playing two different characters, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. See, I, I, am, I haven't seen any of the Die Hard movies past the first one. So don't you. You're not really missing anything. That's kind of the consensus <laughs> that that 
I found, so I'm not super gung ho. I'm not a Bruce Willis fan outside of like the sixth sense. Yeah. So, so for me, it's not a, I'm not running to the Bruce Willis is definitely one of those actors. You, you either like him or you don't, there's really no in between. True. True. Um, are you a fan of black mirror? The show? I love black mirror. I used to watch it when, before it was on Netflix, I remember sending like, uh, illicit links to sites where you could watch British TV <laughs> to my friends, um, back when it was still a show that you could basically only catch in the UK. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I was obsessed with it. It was absolutely right up my alley. And I mean, obviously our entire world is just black mirror now. So mm-hmm. the number, the number of times, not just us, but now the general public will turn to you and say, Oh, this is black mirror. This is some black mirror shit. You know, it became a phenomenon, but yeah, I've, I, I haven't enjoyed it as much in the last couple seasons. Last couple uh, seasons have not been that great. Quite, quite, quite forgettable. Lost some of its magic. Um, but I also think that's an idea that you can only run so far with is like technology is bad. Technology is scary. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, we get it. Um, but yeah, I love Black Mirror generally. <laughs> he was in an episode of Black Mirror. He was in the Black Museum episode. Oh, shit. Yeah, he was. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. That's, Which I is a great really episode. Like that episode too. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's one of my favorites, I think, of that season. Yeah, that's um, definitely a top. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Black Mirror, the one, the very first one I saw was the one with Bryce Dallas Howard. I mean, that one's that one's cool, I guess, but it's not. I it's it wouldn't be anywhere near my first recommendation for. Anyone. Oh no 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 no! After I went yeah. and you know watched the rest of them, I realized there were way more episodes, so like way better uh-huh. episodes and stuff like that. But that was the first yeah. one I ever watched because that was the Netflix does that really weird thing where it starts you on season three and then takes you to season two and then takes you to season one. So that's how I watched it. Um, mm-hmm. I put down my phone for like four days. After watching that episode, because I really thought about like I was always on Instagram, Facebook, stuff like that. And I'm just like, oh, shit, this is and this is the world we're actually coming to where we live off of Instagram and Facebook and everybody puts their lives out there, their opinions out there. They want to be validated and stuff like that. And now it's getting to the point where you are judged as a character in society based on how you perform on social media. Yeah, people are going to use your social media against you or for you. Well, I mean, that's something that I'm sure we can both relate to really strongly running social media basically as a side business for both of us. I mean, the fact that we talking about this now, I mean, we are both, like you said, controlled by our technology and a lot of our the majority of what we do day to day and the way that we communicate with most of the people we communicate is through technology. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and I mean, it's great in a lot of ways, but I'm always thinking of those things like uh, the privacy of myself and my co-hosts, but also the privacy of the people that we're involved with. I think about that a lot. And I think about the things we say and post, making sure that they're not triggering people or or insulting people and us wanting to be crass and funny without being, <laughs> you know, you know, without getting canceled, basically. And, yeah. and um, you know, that hasn't been difficult for us because we're not well, we are pieces of shit, but we, we do our best <laughs> to kind of rein it in. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's something that I think about all the time because, you know, I'll sit down for a movie and if I'm not 100% invested in it within the first 10 minutes, I'm on Instagram messaging you <laughs> or I'm messaging, you know. I'm glad I could be you, a good distraction. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say half, half the time, half the time that I'm, that I'm talking to you, actually almost the entire time I'm talking to you on Instagram, I'm in the middle of some movie that I'm like, probably bored about uh, um yeah so so i just hop over to instagram and i'm like who's on right now you know and just 
or uh, post something on the story and try to bait people into having a conversation with me. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, uh, let's take it back uh, to the last person I want to talk about from the cast, uh, Michael Dorman, playing the role of Adrian's brother, Tom. I tell you what, I think he was actually a lot more creepy than Adrian was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I, I was reading into that, and they purposefully made him creepy. They they gave him that vibe, uh, like making him wear clothes that were smaller than what he uh, would typically wear. So he's got that kind of tight fit uncomfortableness to him. The blank stares that he had while people were talking, the, the tone in his voice, he did... Such a great job creeping me out that from the very beginning, I got that feeling like this guy knows something. He's involved in some way, shape or form. Yeah. In whatever's happening. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that the guy is a really good actor and he really impressed me with how he was able to play both sides because I fully believed when I was first introduced to him that he was going to be a, a huge creepazoid. And that's obviously the void, the, the vibe that you're supposed to get from, like you said, the way he's dressed, you know, down to those again perfect little details that Winnell likes to put into his movies. I, I just love mm -hmm. stuff, hearing stuff like that. Um, just how much thought goes into it. But yeah, I mean, he immediately, you think, okay, this guy's a creep. He has something to do with it. And then especially like for me as somebody who has a brother who has a, a younger sibling kind of starting to relate, seeing my brother in him and seeing myself maybe as Adrian, which probably doesn't make me look very good or him look very good. But I'd say you're a narcissistic sociopath. Yeah, uh, the only thing, the, <laughs> the only thing, I'm, the only thing I'm missing is the invisibility suit. But uh, yeah, I mean, just being able to kind of relate on that level and say like this happens in in real life with sibling relationships. You have the sibling who feels like they never got the the credit and they never fit in and they never really were able to live their own life. And that's the case with this guy. He really is this spineless jellyfish like they say in the movie who never never got to live his own life and he's just a pawn in this big game that his brother is playing and it's and it's horrible and another another instance that's less focused on but still i think impactful of adrian's abuse it's not just with elizabeth moss with cecilia it's with everyone in his life because he is a narcissist he is a sociopath he is absolutely he's got to have that control. yeah he doesn't care about anyone but himself yeah himself so typical narcissist. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I, that's a really great point that you brought up there, that whole dynamic. So you got to see something different. And uh, there's probably a whole different crowd of people right there who can relate to that. Uh, having a sibling that has always overshadowed them or something like that. Or having a sibling that has never given them the opportunity to be their own person. Um, you know, I'm, I've been very fortunate. I have an older brother. Uh, he's been on my show many times. And... Uh, when we were growing up, I was always Robert's younger brother. I wasn't me. Yeah. I was Robert. I mean, everybody knew who I was, but I, they're like, you're Robert's younger brother. You're Robert's younger brother. I was stuck in this kid's shadow. Yeah. And uh, I love you, Robert, if you're listening. <laughs> um, I know you're listening. Uh, but, uh, you know, I can see any other person probably would have been a little bit more warped by that whole thing. I, I am my own person. I did become my own person. I created my own life. But there are some people who can get lost in that shadow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think uh, naturally you, you expect that most people will leave the nest. They'll grow and they'll, they'll kind of separate themselves from their siblings. This movie shows 
and this is actually just something that I'm realizing for the first time and also seems very obvious now that I'm thinking about it, but obviously the sibling relationship is paralleled between Cecilia's sibling relationship with her sister where there's tension yes. and then, but her sister is, is f- for the large part there for her um, until obviously Adrian decides to destroy that relationship. And then obviously there's the relationship between Adrian and his brother, Tom, and that also ends poorly for for them. You know, that relationship yeah. gets torn apart. So you get these two parallel uh, sibling, not rivalries, but these sibling relationships that I think are, like you said, really, they, they make a lot of sense to somebody who has a sibling. Absolutely. And that's all I really had for cast. I mean, there's a bunch of other smaller players in this film, uh, but uh, those are the main ones I wanted to highlight. Is there anybody you wanted to bring attention to? Um, the only other one that I had a note of, and this is not somebody that we need to actually focus on. It's just a nice bit of trivia. The man who interviews Cecilia at her architecture job interview is Benedict Hardy. Um, this won't mean anything to you yet, but he plays a much bigger role as a villain in Upgrade. Oh, Okay, and he he's fantastic and very creepy, and so Lee Winnell specifically brought him back for this cameo because he loved him so much from Upgrade. So he's one of those like key players in the Lee Winnell uh, repertoire now. All right, well then another reason to sit down and watch Upgrade. I might just have to do that this week. Do it, do it now. Um, <laughs> so the next category that we have is your favorite actor slash actress. Well, we we both have already said it a billion times. Elizabeth Moss is brilliant throughout this film, so she definitely steals the show. Who would you label as your favorite actor in this film? Probably Aldous Hodge. Okay. Um, yeah, I, w- I would say that he, you know, outside of Elizabeth Moss, he's the character that I I liked the most. I mean, I, I loved Oliver Jackson Cohen's performance, but he's just not in the in the movie enough for me mm-hmm. to really to really say that he got to stretch his acting chops. I know he possesses because I've seen him in, in things that he has really, really blown me away in. Mm-hmm. So I can't really give him that award, even though I, I like him a lot. So I think in this case, um, it would probably be between Aldous Hodge or the brother. But I just love how charming um, the James character is and how family oriented he is. The scenes with them kind of laughing and joking together are great. But then when he has to get into this action mode, you really feel like he could kick ass, which makes it scary when he starts getting his ass kicked. Yeah. And he's and it's very convincing. I mean, all these actors having to act with either stunt people that are getting green or that are getting, you know, CG'd out or with completely empty rooms. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, it's incredible. You have to really bring your top notch level of emotion to your performance or people are going to laugh at the fact that this is happening. Yeah, no. Like absolutely agree. without a good performance, the, the kitchen scene or or the scene in the hallway toward the end with Aldous Hodge, none of that would have worked if the performances sucked. <laughs> like if they weren't on point. So no, you truly believe somebody invisible there is killing these people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which yeah, which is very impressive. Um I I like your pick. I really do, but I'm gonna go with the brother on this one, Michael uh Dorman. I, I just really love his creepy factor through the whole thing. And he's, like I said, he's always got this look on his face that he's holding on to something. He's holding back. He's got this secret. He's ready to rub it in her face. And when he gets the opportunity to finally do so, you can just, you can hear the smugness in his voice, even though he's whispering to her, you know, pulls out the phone. It's like one phone call. We can make all this go away, you know? Yeah. And I'm just like that bastard. And I just, uh, and then his final reveal of his involvement in it, I, I just thought it was a nice little twist. Um, 
And it just goes to show again that, you know, you may think that you're being terrorized or there's one bad person in this whole film. Well, or uh, in life in general, but there can be multiple people who are out there doing the terror and doing all those horrific things, working together, whether he was willingly working with his brother to make this happen, or if he was just, again, being played by his brother to do so, he contributed to that evil, and he contributed to a lot of what Elizabeth Moss was suffering from throughout that film. And I think that just... And you see him more than you see Adrian throughout the whole film. So, Yeah, oddly enough, you don't see Adrian very much in The Invisible Man. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, uh, yeah. who would have thought? Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. Right. No. Um, yeah. I mean, those are all great points. I think that he does a. He, I mean, he serves a great role in being the the creepy villain character that we're kind of missing by having the actual villain be this invisible tension. You still kind of want that character that you can spit at and go like, "Oh, this piece of shit." Mm-hmm. And you're doing that on a broader level with Adrian throughout the entire movie, but he's largely absent. So having that other character to kind of continue to ratchet up that tension yeah. and continue to ratchet up and, and l- add some layers to the plot. Um, yeah, I completely agree. It's, it, he's a really good device and every scene that he was in, I was enthralled by um, because th- you're just watching these two actors uh, go back and forth, not knowing what the true intentions a lot of the time of either person are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So next we are going to be talking about some of our favorite scenes throughout this one. I, I I want to throw out there that I know it's really not a scene, but I loved the opening titles of this movie. Absolutely. I, again, as a, as a graphic designer, as an artist, I nerd out so hard about this stuff. Um, and as soon as these opening credits came up, I was a hundred percent sold. They're gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And Lee Winnell was saying that he, he's a huge geek also about opening credits for movies and a lot of movies uh, skimp on even having any, you know anything at the opening anymore yeah. um, or they have something very overt or boring in this case it's something that i feel perfectly encapsulates the movie um very interesting idea and, and i love everything they did with the marketing because even the title card in the trailers had the kind of dis- or disappearing reappearing mm-hmm. um title for the invisible man uh, and that stuff is uh Stuff I, I hope to work on one day is work on stuff for movies. That's a uh, a pipe dream that I have. So <laughs> that's that's an awesome dream, and uh, obviously that's a big part of the industry now is being able to uh, have that kind of uh, graphic design, those CGI effects, and things like that. And there's always going to be a need for it. So I, I really hope you get to realize that dream one day. I do. Thank you. And if not, I will just invent that invisibility suit. There you go. Yeah. There you go. There's only one problem I had that with. Jeez, why is my like? I feel like I'm choking. <laughs> I think there's <laughs> an invisible person in here. Oh um, shit! Don't die on me, man. Ah, <laughs> uh, the only problem I had with the opening title scenes, as beautiful as they were, um, was the follow through on how he was creating that effect. So obviously, you got these waves that are hitting this rock. The water is crashing up and then crashing over the words to create that effect. So you could actually see the words. So every time wave came, crash, water, words, wave, crash, water, words. Well, as soon as they were done and they did the Invisible Man title and they start uh, moving slowly towards the view of the house, no more waves come. So they were literally only CGing the waves so they could have those titles and after they accomplished what they would do, they didn't send any more waves. So I'm just like, you're telling me the waves just stopped? 
I notice <laughs> things like that. Sorry. No, that's completely fine because again, that's just like that's why I talk like to talk with other people about these movies is because that's not something that's going to at all dampen my experience of watching this movie. But yeah. it's something but it's something that I enjoy thinking about because it's like, yeah, when I make a movie, I'll be on the the lookout to make sure I don't make those kind of mistakes. Because that's an easy fix. And I'm sure that was just something that happened in editing. Of course. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it is something to pick out when a movie that you... And, you know, it's fun. When you think a movie is largely close to perfect, uh, it's fun to find the things that aren't perfect about it. You know, it's every, everyone ha- every movie has its beauty mark or its little imperfection, so... Yeah, absolutely. And this movie definitely has a few of them. It's not absolutely perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've got a, I've got a few uh, things written down here for the plot hole slash mistakes. So uh, yeah. we will definitely get there. Uh, what would be your all-time favorite scene in this whole film or sequence in this whole film? Probably. So So my my initial thought, which I'm sure is most people's initial thought, is the dinner scene. Because the dinner oh, scene yeah. is basically... It's one of the the iconic scenes from this movie. I don't know if iconic is the right word, um, but it's it's very powerful and very well done. My favorite scene, I think, is and I don't maybe not necessarily a scene, but just extended portion of the movie is everything with the Invisible Man in the asylum into the rain in the parking lot. It's a great one. Yeah, because I think that entire fight scene escape is gorgeously choreographed and shot he, he uses a lot of the same kind of um fixing the camera to a point and then twisting it yeah robotically and he does he he came up with that concept in upgrade um and so seeing that again i was like yes that's like a lee Winnellism now uh and then going out to the rain the fact that they chose not to have any score but just the pounding of the rain and it's dark and it's mysterious and creepy and the whole thing is just building up this tension it's great. I think I think it's an amazing sequence. There's so many from this movie. The other one, the attic scene, is great. Oh, that's my favorite. From beginning to end. Yeah, that's a, another great one. I mean, so many standout parts of this movie that are super memorable. That attic scene, uh, I tell you what, it still gets my heart kind of thumping uh, when we get to that part because I, I'm a little I'm a little jaded from attic scenes after watching uh, Hereditary. And, oh yeah, you know, you know, looking up <laughs> there, there's Tony Collette. <laughs> um, yeah, that'll definitely. Uh, change your opinion on attic scenes <laughs> yes um but i, I just love everything about the attic scene because uh the whole lead up to it where she's calling adrian's phone and she hears the buzzing the vibrations of the phone and she's trying to figure out where it was and she realizes it's above her and she goes up into the attic and she's starting to discover things she discovers the phone he's been living up there uh i saw in notes that uh some of the some of that scene got cut he had food up there, her clothes, I heard that too. things like that, um, a knife in a bag. Uh, just You realize that he or whoever has been haunting her, literally haunting her in the same house that she's in when she thought she was safe, that he had no idea where she was and things like that. Uh, going through his phone, the pictures that he took while her and Sydney were sleeping and stuff. That is just the creepiest scene. And of course, it all comes to uh, a point when she realizes or believes that somebody is at the entrance of that attic watching her. And then she dumped. Does she dump paint? I'm having a hard time figuring that part out. Yeah, so it was supposed to, it was supposed to be paint. In reality, I guess they used some sort of gelatinous milk type product. Yeah. Um, because the paint didn't look right. So, no, it did not. <laughs> yeah. To me, it looks like she just poured a bucket of milk on him. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I thought it was supposed to be paint, but when I saw the splatter on the walls and the floor and stuff like that, like, paint wouldn't do that. Paint yeah. would not do that at all. Yeah. Uh, I think he wanted a specific look for the movie, and so they didn't use actual paint. Or it could have been an, an issue with having to reset the scene. Like, if you're using actual paint, obviously, you're going to be ruining whatever you're throwing it on. Yeah. So ha sense. having this washable... But I mean, apparently, according to a scene that we see right after this, the uh, there's like an instant wash mode on the invisibility suit. Yeah, that that was going to be my next question. Is like, so he got all you saw. He was pretty much covered. Uh, the upper half of his body was covered, and then all of a sudden, it's all gone. How? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we can get into this a little bit more when it comes to plot holes or yeah. issues with the movie, but. I would say that this is probably just a um, either an issue with editing or an issue with just we don't want to waste time watching watching him wash the suit off in the sink. We're just going to assume that he did it real quick. Um, and if you're going to believe that a man invented an invisibility suit, I guess maybe Winnell thinks you can stretch your disbelief or suspend your disbelief for this. The other thought is when you get to the <laughs> when you get to the reveal of what's actually going on with there being multiple invisible men, then you start questioning all of your plot hole things because then it's like, well. What if the one that attacks her in the kitchen isn't the same guy that got splashed with the paint? What if they're, you know, and I'd have to rewatch the movie and really pick apart the timeline. But I don't know if you could you could clarify on that. I thought um, about that, too. Um, yeah. But from what I understand, from what I took away from the movie, that there were only two suits. Yeah. The one that Adrian was wearing and then the one that was uh, still at the mansion that Elizabeth Moss went, took and hid. So if there were only two suits... I, I have to believe there was only one person in that house terrorizing her at the time. So I don't think because I thought about the two It's like, well, maybe there was a swap out real quick. Yeah, but I don't I don't think there would have been enough time to do so. Maybe we're just overthinking this too much. Well, well, and the thing that I just thought of is I'm sure he wasn't expecting to get doused in paint. So he probably didn't have like this backup plan of switching out. So I don't think when yeah. he was surprised that he would have thought he would have been that clever. And we see later in the movie that he does start to become unhinged in his plan. He goes from being very subtle with what he's doing to her to being pretty reckless. And then obviously with his brother being involved, it gets very confusing who's making Mm -hmm. the decisions at from point to point and and we've together on our show broken down where we think each invisible man is but that's a conversation that could go on for another two hours <laughs> yeah yeah uh but Lee it, Winnell it just, himself said that uh he is the only person who knows in the entire movie and every scene where the invisible man actually is and who it is and he'll never tell well good for you Lee Winnell <laughs> good for you director writers <laughs> rights yeah um and then my uh, my second favorite scene, I, I do love that dinner scene uh, at mm -hmm. the end. Uh, it it's very phenomenal. Uh, I love a good I love a good dinner scene that just builds tension. Again, flashback to Hereditary. That's probably one of my favorite scenes of that whole movie is the dinner scene. It's just so much tension, so much buildup and stuff like that. You know something's wrong. They they got so much to say and they're saying it with their eyes and all this. It's just it's brilliant. But I love the restaurant scene. The restaurant scene is my second favorite one because it just completely took you by surprise right there in the middle of everything. Anybody could have been seeing if the raw, if the, if anybody was looking that general direction at the right time, they would have just seen a knife floating in the air before it went and did what it did. Yeah. And I, I went to see the movie twice in theaters and both times when that scene happened, it's, it's what I love so much about 
Lee Winnell specifically loves to do this. And I know James Wan is good about this too, about, again, it's part of this misdirection of wanting to scare you without doing a classic musical sting jump scare. And Mm -hmm. so the way this is set up, you're watching it and they're building you up to think, okay, they're having some sort of reconciliation or she's finally going to tell her what's going on and things are going to work out. And the people in the audience, you can hear it. It's like half the audience realizes the knife is floating there before anything happens. And you just hear (gasps) a gasp when everybody realizes what's going on. And then when it actually happens, the other half of the audience realizes what's going on and they all freak out. And so you get this wave of shock going through the audience because the scare was like a, with this multifaceted, uh, really, really awesome shocking reveal in the, in the movie. I was, it took me completely by surprise when I saw it. Absolutely. That yeah. Was... I mean, it, 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 that's absolutely it got to make the list of favorite scenes for sure. It's just, uh... But I, then, I, like I said, I, then again, I sit there and think about that. I felt like that was a very bold move uh, story-wise to place yourself in such a public setting. I mean, I and I get the effect that it had. I mean, obviously, it created chaos in the restaurant and stuff like that. But seriously, I can't help but think, what if somebody just happened to be looking at that exact moment? Would there have been a completely different response? Yeah, it's hard to say. We talk about this sometimes on the show, like how realistic people's complaints about like horror movie reactions are mm-hmm. um, like, I mean, uh, jumping a little bit ahead from this specific part, I thought that the reactions of everyone being kind of halted at first and then suddenly everybody realizing what happened and freaking out in the restaurant. Uh, but it taking a little bit was very realistic. You know, I think when mm-hmm. something horrifying and kind of unexplained or completely unexplained in this case happens, you're going to be in complete shock. Um, and I can I can completely believe that nobody would be fucking paying attention to them because when I'm in a restaurant, I do everything I can to avoid eye contact with. <laughs> you don't want to see anybody else. <laughs> yeah, remember, remember going to restaurants with other people? That was crazy. What? Um, Who does that? <laughs> bunch of freaks. Yeah, I um, yeah. So I mean, I I didn't really have too much of a problem with it. I know a lot of people had they drew that as a plot hole, saying, "Well, wouldn't there be cameras in the restaurant?" And I'm like, "Have you guys seen what camera footage?" Okay. Like, I I don't I I don't believe for a second that a camera would have good enough quality in a restaurant to pick up the fact that she wasn't holding the knife because it's right next to her. I would be shocked if somebody looked at that and said, "Oh yeah, no, that looks more like it's a floating knife." They would go, "Oh, the video is grainy," and and she, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's like in real in real life, it's not going to be 4K video of what's going on. Like no, we're seeing it, we're seeing it we're seeing it in Ultra HD, but nobody on a CC TV camera or a a restaurant security camera, wherever that is in this giant restaurant is going to catch specifically. So I didn't have a problem with it, but I, no, I it, it's it's just a thought that I have, and I absolutely agree with you about the whole uh, restaurant camera thing. You know, as having a background in restaurant management, I can tell you that restaurant cameras, security cameras, are not the greatest. They 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 try their best, but you know, you're relying on things like lighting and stuff like that. But there's so much chaos happening within a restaurant. You're never going to have a hundred percent good vantage point from a camera perspective. So even if a camera just happened to catch it, there could have been somebody standing in the way oh you know um or like you said sometimes the footage is just so grainy or it's hard to pinpoint you know you can't see that her hand is not there it's down here and stuff like that so i can i can buy that 100 so it's just a thought that i had maybe if just like 
I like to think maybe if the mo- if one little thing changed in the movie, how would that have changed the tone of the rest of the film? And that's just one of those thoughts I had at that very particular moment. There's there's a, an awful lot of that in the movie, and, and some of it does bother me a little bit more than other stuff. There's a lot of stuff. And I know Lee Winnell said in a quote that he doesn't like give a shit about explaining uh, plot holes that people are coming up with or anything, because he said, in my head, it makes sense. And that's the only thing that matters. Yeah. And he was like, he was like, it makes complete sense to me and you guys are all wrong. And <laughs> I, you know, I love, I love that sentiment because it really is how you have to treat movies unless the plot holes are so egregious that it completely destroys what's going on. And yes, in this movie, it may seem very convenient that things happen in the way that they do, but that's called a movie. Like yeah. that's why, that's why the story exists is because yeah, it's not reality. Things don't always sync up like poetry to where everything you say with your friends ties into the horrific events that are going to happen later in your life. Like, Oh, remember when I said this thing? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I forgive a lot of that stuff, but, um, I think a lot of people are a bit more bothered by those kind of things when they go into a movie. I think it just depends on what kind of mindset you're in and how you would like to, uh, digest movies, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, do you have any other scenes or sequences that you want to highlight? I mean, the kitchen scene is fantastic. And the thing that stands out so much about her being attacked in the kitchen is the wonderful mix of practical and CG effects. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly convincing for what it is. And what I love about it so much is, or one of the things is that you read about the original Invisible Man, the 33 Invisible Man, and you hear about Claude Rains having to wear this full body claustrophobic black suit. And uh, all the crazy stuff they had to do that was pioneering for the time to make the Invisible Man effects, which I think largely are still fantastic in that movie, um, work. And so this movie feels like an homage to that original in that way and that a lot of the stuff that's done in this movie is in camera or it's practical. It's tying strings to things and ropes and picking people up and throwing them on harnesses. You know, it's it, the CG is really when they absolutely need to do it to remove the Invisible Man from the scene. Um, so that one blows me away because that's the one you see broken down in like YouTube videos and stuff about how they did the behind the scenes of making that because it's a really visceral, intense scene and you're convinced she's in the room with somebody else because she largely was Yeah, <laughs> a, a lot of the time. <laughs> it is, that It's a fantastic scene. I got to go. Uh, I got to go look that up. I love watching special effects, uh, breakdowns and stuff like that. Uh, when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to take some TV production classes and uh, one of the movies that we actually studied was Final Destination 2 and how they achieved a lot of the special effects um, in that movie. And so uh, I think I would enjoy watching how they uh, achieved some of these effects, practical yeah, and it, CG. Yeah, it's really fun. And now that you've, you know, you've seen the movie and, and after we've talked about it, I think you'll dig going and checking out some of that um, bonus behind the, the scenes stuff because there's a lot of really good stuff for this movie. Awesome. Uh, well, then next up, we got some quotable lines. Um this one was a tough one for me, actually, because, you know, there's a lot of good dialogue in this movie, but I'm not sure if I could consider a lot of it quotable. Yeah, I mean, for me, I looked up some of the quotes, honestly, uh, because because nothing really popped up in my head. Uh, I think less memorable or quotable lines and more just like memorable quotes are, are things that I think that are really well written um, are like from Cecilia when she says he said that wherever I went, he would mm-hmm. find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him, which is in the trailer. I mean, that's a terrifying line. Um, and then Tom saying Adrian was brilliant, like I said, but it wasn't because of anything he invented. It was how he got into people's heads. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, uh, he has figured out a way to make himself invisible. You know exactly what I'm talking about. He's not dead. I just can't see him. Um, you know, another just spine tingling line, um, from Elizabeth Moss. She does a great job delivering these lines and convincing you that she actually went through this. Yeah. That very first one you said, that was the first one I had written down. Uh, the other two that I have are actually in relation to the whole idea of domestic violence and control. And the only reason they stick out to me is because I've heard these. I've heard very similar lines or uh, you know words being said from friends that I know who have... Uh, been victims of this you know so she's explaining to james and her sister what it was like to be with adrian it just doesn't make any sense he was complete control of everything you know including me he controlled how i looked what i wore what i ate and then it was controlling then it was controlling when i left the house and what i said and eventually what i thought and if he didn't like what he assumed i was thinking he would do things you know and then the other line that um, really stuck out to me was in that dinner scene, he's talking, he's like, my hand is shaking. You're the only person in the world who gets to see my handshake, and it's because I need you. That is such a narcissistic freaking line. Yeah. It, it, he's trying to be vulnerable, but, but he's also, he's asserting his control. And Yeah, it's, yeah and manipulating her still. It's very, manipula <laughs> it's very manipulative. Yeah. And... People like that will say things like that to make you feel special, make you feel needed, make you feel wanted. But then it just all falls under that need to control. So those two lines really stuck out to me because personally, I've heard stuff like that before. And I just couldn't imagine being on the receiving end of that that line that Adrian says. And I couldn't imagine having to sit there and try to explain to somebody what it was like to be in that type of relationship. How do you form those words? Yeah, I mean, it's horrific. And the fact that it happens to anyone is is awful. Um, I do think it's really, really great that it's becoming more of a talked about issue. And those quotes that you pulled are perfect. I do think that Winnell most likely interviewed or at least spent some time with domestic uh, abuse survivors because mm -hmm. those lines do sound like almost direct quotes you would hear from somebody. And I've known people too who have been through abusive relationships and have said extremely similar things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and you try to help these people uh, but you can never understand what somebody is going through in a relationship. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, expressed so well in this, too, is that I think a problem that people would have is go, why would someone like this, uh, like Cecilia, ever be with this Adrian guy for so long and ever get so embroiled in this? And it's exactly what you said. It's because these people who are able to manipulate vulnerable people who are looking for that love and that affection and that wanting to feel special they're the ones who unfortunately are going to be manipulated by the people in the world who want to take advantage of that for their own ends. And so her journey in this movie is her going from, you know, we start at the point where she's decided to no longer be that person. Yeah. And, and we get to watch her journey to a point where in the end, when he's trying to mani manipulate her, she gets to completely turn the tables on him and she's manipulating him the entire time, even down to the food she picks when he offers her options. He says, pasta, sushi, steak. She says steak because she's she wants to have a knife. Mm -hmm. She's already manipulating the situation from the very beginning. So it's this great story of overcoming this this awful thing that you've has basically become your life. Yeah, and and kind of starting over. Um, and so I think yeah, if people have a problem with that, they probably haven't been in 
that kind of relationship. They probably haven't experienced it. Um, and I think people who can will either be so affected by this that they can't watch it, or they will really strongly relate to the characters you're supposed to relate to. If you relate to the Adrian character, sorry, that's bud, a whole different problem. Discussion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you might have a problem. I know I've joked about relating to him, but uh, no, not even slightly. Yeah. Not, not in reality. <laughs> He's a um, piece of shit. <laughs> and it's so easy for anybody from the outside to be like, "Well, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you leave?" Well, you know, it's you really got to sit there and think about it. It's not easy. Look through, look how long it took her to finally not just work up the courage to do it, but to plan it all out. She had to meticulously plan every detail. And even still, things went wrong. You know, she drugged him to ensure that he stayed asleep. Uh, she had packed away a suitcase and hidden it. She knew exactly what camera she needed to turn off, which means she needed security codes and everything like that. She had to plan. So it's not just as easy as walking out the door. And you even find that out, no matter how much you plan, he's still almost caught up to her. Yeah, and she kicks the dog bowl and she sets off the car alarm and all, you know, yeah. all this different stuff. So yeah, it's it's an amazing opening sequence and it's a really good way of showing you the fear that she's endured for so long. You know, you're getting this short window into what her life has been like for so long before she finally escapes it or thinks she's escaped it. And um, yeah, you, you're you're sitting there holding your breath while she's crawling through this house, hoping she doesn't make any noise because you're already, think, you already know just from the short amount of time you've spent with these two characters, just from looking at her face, that Adrian is absolutely terrifying. And the last thing we want is for him to know that she's trying to get away. Um, so yeah, I think that's just an e expert setup for the whole rest of the movie. And yeah, when you're in that kind of situation, a lot of time there's violence involved. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time it is a situation where it is a larger, stronger man who could easily kill you. I mean, he's um, a big dude. Yeah. Yeah. And he punches through that fucking window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. He's a, he's, he's a hunk of hunk um, for <laughs> sure. But yeah, if only his brain wasn't garbage, but um, yeah, I mean, she she obviously like had reason to be afraid of him even before he was invisible mm -hmm. and that that just power of invisibility just made his ability to create fear all the more powerful very black mirror very black mirror yeah. so on a scale of one to ten what do you rate this movie so I don't remember what I gave it on our episode, but I did want to try to go into this episode removed from what I had said there. Um, I didn't go back and listen to that episode because I didn't want to just repeat myself. Um, I think having watched it so many times, honestly, my score has gotten a little bit lower than it initially had. I think when I first saw it, I would have given it like a nine out of 10. Mm -hmm. um, now I think I'm sitting somewhere more at an eight okay, uh, or, or uh, maybe like an eight and a half, nine, just because I've seen it so many times now that... Uh, I'm seeing it less as perfect and just a really, really well-crafted movie. And I'm, and I try to reserve those uh, nines and 10 out of 10s for the movies that I think there's basically nothing wrong with. Yeah. Um, so this is a, yes, strong eight and a half, nine, somewhere around there. So what about the movie uh, doesn't give it that strong nine, 10? Uh, th there are just things about the plot that while they may be able to be explained, um, in a way that does make sense once they once they've been explained, it's like a joke. Once the joke's been explained, it's then not it's not anymore. fun. It's not funny anymore. And while I love that Lee Winnell does this with his movies, 
And I love when horror movies do this in general, letting the audience do the work, like letting you constantly have your brain gears going, trying to figure out where's the invisible man? How did he do this? Where did this thing come from? It does just create a lot of kind of uh, maybe unnecessary, unnecessary backtracking in your mind to try to make sense of everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a movie that isn't like a Christopher Nolan or, uh, you know, JJ Abrams puzzle box thing, it is a pretty, (laughs) it is a pretty simple movie Mm -hmm. overall. It tends to get a little bit muddied in things where it could have easily just shown you something uh, to make things a little bit less confusing. Like I know the, uh, one of the big complaints that people had was how did Adrian find out that Cecilia was at her, um, was at James's house? Um, like how did he find out all that stuff? And I guess the idea is that the collar that she took off of the dog was not a shot call, was not just a shot collar. It was a perimeter, like a tracking collar of some kind. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what Lee Winnell was saying as an explanation or somebody was saying. And so he was able to track her that way. And it's little things like that where it's like, okay, you explained it, but I'm still not entirely happy with that explanation. And I kind of wish we had just gotten something small to indicate yeah. that that was the case. Yeah. Because, because, you know, it, again, he, I'm happy that he left things kind of vague and made you and made you do the work. And I'm glad to him it all makes sense. But there are a few things that I could definitely pick at. And there are things that we've picked at while we've been talking about this that don't make it perfect. And I also do think that the movie does slow down a little bit in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. And and I enjoy everything about it, but especially showing it to other people who are maybe not as gung-ho on horror movies or Lee Winnell or Elizabeth Moss or something. The movie can kind of get a little bit tedious in the middle while you're waiting for the big reveals her, the big reveals and you're and you're really just waiting for her to finally see the invisible man for people to believe her for things to come to a head and i know it's supposed to be tension building by drawing that out but you get to a point where it's almost exhausting um but then luckily the movie pretty quickly after that turns it up to 11 and kind of stays there for the rest of it um <laughs> So yeah, that, that definitely made up for it. It's just, I did feel like it kind of slowed down in the middle, but outside of that, I don't have too many problems, which is why at most I would knock it like a point and a half down from a full score. Gotcha. I, th- I think that's fair. Uh, I got a few thoughts on all that. So I think he was able to track her and I think it's a little bit more simplistic than the caller. If, if, if that's what he's saying, then great for him. Uh, she still has her cell phone. Oh yeah. That's a great, I mean, that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, there's cell phones all over the place that also kind of confuse I mean, things he, a little bit, but he's, he, yeah. he's a genius. He's a technological genius. So you're, I'm pretty sure he used some sort of tracking of the cell phone to figure out where she was. I mean, cause like, you know, it's the same cell phone that she's always had because she calls him from it late at the end of the movie, you know, to set up that dinner and he knows it's her calling immediately. So I was like, well, if he knows that number and he knows it's her, that's got to be the same cell phone, and hopefully you thought she would be smart enough to turn off tracking, but I guess there's, there's no way to ever truly turn off the tracking of your cell phone either. So Yeah, and I guess that could create an entire other wormhole, and I'm sure people have complained about this already, but you know, why didn't she just destroy her cell phone or get rid of it or turn yeah. it off when she left? There's no reason she, she had to keep it, and I do think that her character would have been smart enough to not take it with her. For that specific reason, she knows Adrian well enough to know that he would track her. That's why she's going to somewhere he doesn't think she doesn't think he'll be able to find her. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's just one of those things. Again, back to our point where if you want to, you can pick apart this movie, mm-hmm. and and you can you can pick fifty different things throughout it that can 
pull it apart. And I, and, and at that point you're kind of losing the enjoyment. You're losing the point yeah, you, of you, the movie. Yeah. I'm, we're not here to destroy this movie for anybody, you know, so it is, it is a terrific movie, no matter what kind of score we're going to give it. We still recommend you go watch it. And I agree with you. I give it an eight out of 10. Uh, there's yeah. just a few things that, uh, bother me, you know, uh, just some just some plot I'm not, not going to call them plot holes but there's just some details in the plot that I really wish they would have spent a little bit more thought on or uh given just a little bit more explanation to so you know as an audience member I don't mind drawing some conclusions but if I have to sit there and draw all the conclusions well not that he makes us draw all the conclusions in this movie but if I have to sit there and really try to piece together the path that we're taking, you know, like, well, how did we get from here to here? Well, this has got to be the only logical way. If I have to put, do all that work, then you've kind of lost me. I don't want you to do it all for me. Give me, give me, but give me some of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's, it's a reaction to the fact that a lot of people who are, are really into movies bitch about exposition scenes all the time you know that's one of the people's biggest complaints about what makes a scene in a movie bad is if the exposition is delivered in a way that is not artistic or clever in any way so i definitely understand why he tried to go in the direction of having almost no exposition and having everything come from just lines of dialogue mm -hmm. and this movie i mean that's what i think almost works better than anything else in this movie um is the writing i mean lee Winnell's a, a great writer and i think that the number i i couldn't even get them all in my notes so i didn't even bother the number of things that characters say in this movie that are direct references to things that are going to happen later in the movie yeah i mean it's almost every line of dialogue is some reference to something about that that character or some theme or some down to the names of the characters like cecilia cecilia is a uh you know shortened they're calling her c like that's literally an easy you know she's called c um because it's the invisible man movie yeah and um her yeah and her name is based off of um i think like a greek uh figure or something like that and so is adrian and then you have things like the dog being called zeus because adrian has a, like a god complex you know <laughs> just all just all that kind of stuff i i think is extremely clever and i think is what works so well about lee Manel movies mm -hmm. um i just think sometimes he gets a little bit too wrapped up in trying to make something that's not on the nose, I guess. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Um, well, that leads us to holes and mistakes. We've kind of talked about what we think are possible plot holes and stuff like that. There's uh, some mistakes. Well, actually, there's one plot hole. Not plot hole, really, but there's something she does that made absolutely zero sense to me. So um, 11 minutes into the movie, she's at um, after the whole two weeks later uh, card that you see. She's standing in front of the French doors at James's house. Like, this is full-windowed French doors. And she's so afraid to go outside because she's so afraid that somehow Adrian has is going to find her and stuff like that. Why the hell are you standing in front of open windows where anybody out on the street could see you if you're so concerned about being seen? Yeah, it's like if you asked around, has anybody seen... Cecilia lately, they'd be like, oh yeah, we saw her yeah. through the wind, those giant ass windows over Standing next door. There, always staring like she's scared of something. I, I don't know what she's doing. Always staring yeah, at I the mean, mailbox. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's probably exactly what it was, is they just needed a shot 
of her longingly staring outside. But yeah, when you look at it realistically, there's no reason she wouldn't be hiding away with curtains closed yeah. if she's really trying to lay low. I just think Lee Winnell loves giant windows. <laughs> yeah, it's great, great. Um, as a director and as a filmmaker, if you if you've got this little thing you like to do. That, that's fine. I just thought maybe for the plot of the story, I, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And then moments later, she actually does go out to check the mail. But this is another thing I never understood. They show it the entire time. The mailbox has that red flag up. Mm-hmm. Why would she go out and check the mail knowing that the red flag is up, which means the no mail, mail has mail been delivered? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Yeah. And then she comes back with mail. No, she doesn't come back with mail that time. It's another time she comes back with mail. But still, um, I'm like, why Why would she go out there? It made zero maybe, sense to me. Maybe uh, maybe mailboxes work differently in Australia. Maybe, yes, where this was filmed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know uh, Winnell was, was saying that there's a lot of stuff about Australia that made this a little bit difficult to shoot because they obviously wanted it to be set in San, San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah, so things like, you know, the scenes of her in the forest, they had to shoot at like a Christmas, like a, a Christmas tree farm, a, like a Christmas tree farm. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is hilarious because pine trees don't grow in Australia natively. And um, so having to do that. And then uh, on the commentary track, when was saying that they found all these weird random little holes in the ground while they were shooting that stuff and didn't say anything until later, but it turned out they were all funnel web spider like dens. Oh, and Elizabeth. Mo- and Elizabeth Moss, I guess, is like, she's arachnophobic. She's terrified of spiders. So they didn't tell her what was going on the whole time they were shooting. And then later on the commentary, he was like, hey, Elizabeth, if you're listening, those were funnel web spiders. She's like, I'm never uh, working with this asshole again. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, and then there, there's a couple other like little mistakes that you see throughout uh, the film. But there's one that uh, another one that caught my eye. So it's after she got out of the asylum and... Um, She's trying to run after who we find out is the brother, but uh, the brother causes this SUV to crash in front of her. Like you literally see front end damage on this thing. She -hmm. gets in the car. She takes off in the car. And in one of the chase scenes, you see the full, full picture of the car. There is zero damage on the car. Ooh, it was, it was blatant. Yeah. So yeah, bad. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how I would have missed that because um, that, yeah, that sounds super blatant. Wow. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff where I'm just like, man, you guys get paid so much money to do what you do, but nobody's perfect. But I'm just like, if you're making a major motion picture and you're getting paid that much money, at least make sure that you're, there's continuity in your shots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's, it's, I read somewhere that, uh, you know, in the scene where she starts cutting her wrists and say, you're not going to get the baby. Uh, like uh-huh. you can literally see the cut marks and then the fight begins. And then as they're in the hallway there in the asylum and stuff like that, you do not see the wound on her arm. Uh, when they're out in the rain, you don't see the wound on her arm and they don't make any allusions to this wound on her arm until she's back in the police station. You actually see it wrapped up in a bandage. So I don't, I, I'd have to go back and really pay attention again. Um, I read that afterwards. Um, but uh, again, continuity. Yeah, and I mean, and I totally believe that that's the case because now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh yeah, I don't remember the cut being brought up again for a long time. Uh, something interesting about that scene, though, is I guess that scene didn't exist of her actually cutting her wrist didn't exist in the UK theatrical release because it was deemed it would have like bumped it to a rating that they didn't want they didn't want it at in the UK. Gotcha. So they so they took out I guess that's just that frame or that that part where she's actually cutting into her wrist, which as somebody who's talked on on our show about 
how that's one of the things that honestly gives me the heebie-jeebies mm. is risk any sort of like wrist slitting or anything like that um it's just too realistic for me it like it goes outside of the realm of horror gore at that point um and it's just too like emotionally impactful for me not to get really weird like freaked out by it um so that the fact that that scene wasn't in the uk version i'm like damn that sucks for you guys I think it's really powerful that she does that and you get to see it. It's pretty fucked up. I agree, but uh, I can also see how it can be a very triggering scene, especially for people who have uh, mental health issues or anything like that. So Absolutely. I mean, uh, as somebody who suffers from mental health issues, depression and everything, luckily I'm not triggered by something like that, but I can see how it can be such a triggering effect. And I'm going to bring up 13 Reasons Why from Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you Did you watch season one? So I avoided the show because I am not interested in watching something that because uh, to be honest, and I mean, this isn't like spilling my beans or anything because we've talked a lot about this on our show, but all three of us on our show have dealt a lot with um, major depression and anxiety, Mm -hmm. um, you know, substance abuse and things in the past that we've all obviously been able to to tackle and settle and and, um, we're doing really well now, all three of us, but we've all struggled with that stuff. So when things get really, really into ideas of self-harm and suicide i kind of just get turned away it's the same way that a lot of people don't want to watch rape revenge films like they love horror but they stay away from that genre because it's just too much i didn't watch 13 reasons why for that reason i was just like i i don't care enough to put myself through this depressing ass story Uh, i tell you what i regret every single moment of watching that i have no idea why i put myself through it and then it all culminated in that scene and they got so graphic with that scene. I it it, it was a horrible event. So I, I can see why it's, it's tasteless in my opinion, but I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> so but even though, you know, it's it's something very minor, I guess you would consider it minor in this film. The uh She's not actually trying to kill herself. She's just trying to trigger him an emotional response from him so she can figure out where he is and she can begin her attack. But the simple fact that she went as far as to actually puncture herself, I uh, just it like you said, gives you the heebie jeebies. Yeah. Uh, best way to put it. Yeah, and it's and it's her taking control. You know, at that point she know, she's now manipulating him because she knows exactly what he's going to do when he sees her do that. Mm-hmm. So that's when you you go, okay, now she's in I'm in charge motherfucker mode, mm-hmm. you know. So it, it's a great moment. And it's all of that, like I said, from when she gets into the asylum through the scene in the parking lot through the rest of the movie really is just to me, fantastic and really edge of your seat stuff. Yes, absolutely. Uh, did you have any uh, plot holes or movie mistakes you wanted to highlight real quick? The one that I hear the most often mentioned is the fact that she goes up into the attic and she finds all of that evidence that Adrian has been in the house and then doesn't do anything with it. And I know a lot of people complained about that. My thought process behind that would be, well, she wasn't expecting to get into this fight with Adrian, yeah. like who was sitting out at the attic. So and by the time she got thrown around and ran out of the house, he would have already gone up. You know, he could have just gone up and gotten the stuff that was there and taken it away. Yeah. And then she, and then she just seems crazier if she tries to bring it up. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a problem with that. I just know that when I was looking into plot holes for this, doing my research, that was popping up on every list where people like she went to the attic and she found his phone and shit. Why didn't she? show it to anybody and i'm like well because literally 10 seconds later she got attacked by an invisible man <laughs> yeah <laughs> like that did you not see the movie <laughs> there so but other than other than that i don't have any but uh any that really 
stuck out to me besides i know a lot of people also complained about the uber or how he got to the house when she gets the uber yeah that that didn't make a lot of sense either but that was something i very easily wrote off um yeah i was like maybe his brother was somehow involved in something at that point like helping him get from place to place or they switched up or you know there's a million ways it could make sense yeah he He's a he's a millionaire genius. I'm sure he's probably got some sort of underground tunnel system. Who knows? Right. Um, there was one thing. It's not a plot hole, but it's a plot question. Would you take? So you just left an abusive relationship. You believe your abuser is dead now, and then you go to a lawyer's office where they told you that your abuser, in his will left you millions of dollars mm-hmm. sign on the dotted line would you take that money i questioned that every i questioned it the first time i watched the movie i questioned it during the rewatch you're trying to you ran away from that life you're trying to forget about that life and taking that money i really ties feel, you to him forever exactly it, 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 so why yeah. would you do that i would have just gotten up and said fuck you i'm out of here yeah, because every time she uses that money for anything, no matter how good it is, whether it's paying for somebody's college, it's Adrian's money. Yeah, so like it, it's like another the the system day, of control. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, that's him trying to manipulate her, and I and maybe the idea is that early, early enough in the movie at that point, she still hasn't really gotten to a point where she's fully in control of the situation, and she's not still being manipulated. I feel like in the very in the first like half of the movie, she is still very much being a victim mm-hmm. she doesn't know really what's going on and she really isn't fighting back very much she's getting thrown around um and so i think maybe she just felt desperate and vulnerable and wanted something that would make her feel better so taking the money but when i saw it the first time i had the exact same thought as soon as it showed she took the money i was like but why there was no reason for her to take that money yeah character wise i don't think it makes a lot of sense no um and and that's that's where I think some of the the problems that are actually more detrimental come in. Uh, and again, I, I, detrimental is too strong a word. They're just the things that are kind of, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know about that, are things that kind of go against character. And there are a couple points with her character where that happens. And that, I think, is one of the more egregious ones. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up because, yeah, it, it never really sat well with me that she would have done that in the first place, just given into the manipulation, unless the explanation, again, very subtle to the point that it might bother people is that she's still being manipulated and going through that arc to taking control. Maybe, maybe, uh, but it really does tie into my next category here. Something or, you know, things that I would have changed about the movie. So that's actually the number one thing I would have changed because I truly feel like it really, it would not have been detrimental to the plot if she hadn't taken the money because he could have still done what he needed to do. The money was just this, it was a false positive. And I think that's the purpose it actually served. Besides the system of control, it was a false positive for the uh, audience. Like, oh, this is a feel good moment. She's, this is her, this is her, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This is her. um, Like her reparations. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. This is reparations for what she had to go through under his um, abuse and stuff like that. And so she's getting what's owed to her. Um but again, I really felt like we could have just done away with that little detail of the storyline and everything else still could have fallen into place. It wasn't going to affect how everything else was going to go for the rest of the movie. And then the other thing I would have changed, um, 
as much as we talked about, you know, as long as the story is right, sure, let's make a sequel. I would have changed it from being an open-ended story to just we're closing this story out. Mm-hmm. No, there's not. There's no way we can continue from here on out. So like she destroys the suits or something like that uh, to where nobody else could have this technology and use it. Obviously, the police have the other suit or whatnot. But she's she's going to destroy any possibility of anybody else trying to copycat this guy. Yeah. Right? And that's how you close a story. And I really wish they would have just gone that route instead of leaving it open-ended. But this is Hollywood, and they got to leave things open-ended. Yeah, I completely agree. The ending uh, could have been a little bit stronger, I think. I mean, it hits it hits well, but I think it could have been stronger in general and it is something that I, I probably would have adjusted in the exact same fashion that you're talking about because her taking the invisibility suit at the end, I understand it's supposed to be her taking control finally. It's It's her taking the power. But again, it's her taking a symbol of his abuse Mm -hmm. with her when we should be thinking at the end that she wants to, again, completely rid herself of anything that reminds her of him, which would be the money, the invisibility suit. And she would obviously not want this invisibility suit existing if it did such horrible things like causing the death of multiple people, including her sister. Why would she even want to risk this getting into the wrong hands by leaving it? in existence you would think that as an intelligent character she would go out see the cop see james and and he would say hey you know i believe you but we got to destroy this thing yes and then they and and then they do it together and they destroy it and then they both walk off together i feel like that is definitely the more realistic approach because i mean there's only there are many ways that they could go forward from here but i really feel like one of the ways is is that she is still so mentally weak from uh, yeah she's taken the power she has destroyed her abuser and stuff like that but she's still the effects of the abuse are still there she's got this suit in hand and she has stopped him from being able to use it but what what's going to happen to her when she puts it on what's going to stop her from doing nefarious things with it and then she literally becomes her abuser and yeah. she's just going to be the embodiment of what she thought she destroyed and i i really feel like that just leads you down a very dangerous path. Yeah. And then you start to kind of, then it starts to get into territory where, where it breaks apart the entire foundation of the movie. I feel if you start yes. think, thinking in the end that he really doesn't understand w- w- what domestic abuse is all about. Like, you know, if you start to pick it apart at the ending like that, it starts to look like maybe dude who's never experienced it doing his best approximation of like, yeah, she won at the end when yeah. anybody, when anybody who's been into it would be like, I would have burned that fucking place down with his body in it, with the suits, Everything. all that, which again would have been a gorgeous. And to me, better ending was that they just torched the place at the end. And then you just had the fire and the, the and sun coming up and, and you just get this, like you get the smile at the end from her, but it's more of a sinister, like, she thinks she won, but there's something else still happening back there. Whereas with the other, the alternative ending where you're burning the place and she's sitting there and she's literally watching memories go up in ashes. Everything that was oppressive to her going up in ashes. You could get a genuine smile. The first relaxed smile she's probably had in the past five years or something like that. You know, that 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 sense of calm that life is going to go on and it's going to go on the right way. Yeah. And, and, she, and burning the place down would be her way of saying, you know, he thought that he 
had so much because he had built all this and was filthy rich. And at the end of the day, it didn't mean anything, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, it's, it wasn't what it didn't make him a good person. And then also just thought of this, uh, they could have easily shown her, shown the shot of her panned up and then done the end credits in a similar style to the opening credits, just in smoke. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that idea. That's beautiful. (laughs) See, Hey, Hollywood. (laughs) Hire me. Yes. Yes. (laughs) This is the man you're looking for. (laughs) Lee, are you listening? Right. Oh man. I would, uh, (laughs) I would shit my pants if I found out Lee when I was listening to literally anything I've ever done. So (laughs) we're going to have to find his email address and send him this episode. Uh, absolutely. I'm going to tweet him, tweet him, tweet him. Yep. Uh, Anything else you would have changed or whatnot? Um, nothing that I haven't already covered. I, like I said, I would have tightened up the middle a little bit, would have made some things less vague, mm-hmm. um, and without over-explaining, would have kept most of it the same. Just yeah. explained a couple more things to kind mm-hmm. of create less of an air of confusion, and then I would have just n- definitively nailed the ending instead of leaving it just as vague as the entire rest of the movie. Yeah. At that point, I feel like if you've been with the movie this far and have a lot of your questions unanswered still a lot of people were probably be, were probably like are you kidding me at the end like because <laughs> it was left was left open-ended and, and a lot of people were probably hoping for that definitive yeah punch at the end so um i think uh, they should hire us for the uh, hashtag i don't know what we want to call this like a snyder cut <laughs> 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 oh the snyder cut yeah. Followed by the air <laughs> cut. Followed by the George Lucas cut. No. Jesus. Oh my gosh. Um <laughs> <laughs> I have something written down. It's the only bullet point I have written down for my miscellaneous category. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier in the episode where I love the misdirection in this film. So during at the beginning of the movie, during her initial escape. And she goes into the la- that lab area of his and she's disarming the cameras and stuff like that you see the little vault that you find out has the suit in it. Well, I'm, mm-hmm. all you see is this like stand with like, looks like cuffs and restraints and stuff like that. My mind went a completely different direction. I thought she was staring and she, because she was looking at it kind of, I, I wouldn't say longingly, but she looked at it like she was familiar with it. I thought it was like a torture device of some sorts that she was escaping and stuff like that. So that's where literally my mind ran with it. Like she looked at it like I never have to be in this fucking thing again. It does look very like a French extreme. Like when she goes into that, you know, because they do the very like clinical surgical looking places like his lab looks like that. And then you have this very stark black suit. It does look like a gimp suit from Pulp Fiction or something like that you would use for some sort of bondage or torture. Um, my my head was in a completely different place because I had just watched The Invisible Man 33 um, before I went and saw the new one and had read a bunch of trivia. And so to me, it immediately stood out as one of the many, many references. And this is kind of tying into what my final like thoughts on the movie, things I wanted to add were. Is just one of many, many references to the original Invisible Man because Claude Rains, who played the Invisible Man in the original, had to wear a full black bodysuit mm-hmm. to pull off the invisibility effect. So I felt like that was a reference. And then you get all kinds of stuff like that, like the the hat and the jacket on the hanger or whatever that look like the Invisible Man from the original. And then you get the yeah. bandaged person, bandaged person in the hospital that looks just like the Invisible Man, like as a little kind of throwaway thing. Um, so yeah, that's 
all that stuff to me was kind of more like, I wonder if he's doing that on purpose intentionally, but I like that, that it is, it could go in the, in the torture direction. And so anybody watching that, not knowing immediately that's an invisibility suit, probably that adds a level of tension and fear to that entire scene that maybe she is being tortured. And it's hinted that she is. Yeah. It's hinted at during the movie that she's at least being like sexually or, or, you know, like a a physically abused. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, you you go into the movie with the Invisible Man. Like you said, it's already an established lore that in past experiences, it's uh, experiments or chemicals or anything like that—a potion that has caused these people to go invisible. So your mind's not going to immediately go to, oh, there's a piece of technology that's going to make somebody invisible or anything like that. So it just that whole tour. I love the misdirection thing there, but it might not even be a misdirection thing. It could just be a. Uh, Use your imagination as to what you think is in this vault. Or it could have just yeah. been something like it could have ended up being nothing. You know, that's the beauty of being a filmmaker is that you can focus your attention on something and just completely be throwing the audience off the scent of the real thing. I guess yeah. that's a misdirection, but still. <laughs> yeah, just one of the many forms that uh Winnell takes in this movie with with yeah, I think misdirection really is the ultimate word because the thing that I think will stand out one of the things that will stand out the most to people watching this movie is the subversion of, of the subverting of, of horror camera techniques and things. And, and as how many of these shots are just pans into empty spaces where you're just picking apart every detail, trying to find where you think the invisible man is. Yeah. And only Lee Winnell, like you said, knows if he's actually there or not. Mm-hmm. So you're saying you're like, I don't know. Um, so that, that kind of stuff is really clever and, and stuff I ha- really haven't seen before. Um, something that you just reminded me of, um, I don't know what made me think about it, but I had read in trivia and had never thought of this. And now it seems obvious Adrian's or, uh, Cecilia's profession is she's an architect, which symbolically is all about building walls, you know, building Mm -hmm. safe spaces. And Adrian's profession is all about digital optics, which is all about seeing things, seeing through things obviously has big implications for privacy so it's this direct opposition between your privacy of being in a in a structured place with walls which is what an architect creates as opposed to adrian who is like i can i can invade your safe space that you've created and his profession is obviously all about that exact thing wow which relates yeah that's awesome. and i was like holy yeah i was like again super simple idea that i that flew right under my radar six times watching the movie i just thought oh cool i like that she has an art job (laughs) i would wow i didn't ever put even two to two together like that but that's that's awesome yeah it's just another reason why i'm like cool on watch seven when (laughs) she's in the art you know when she's talking about her job and everything i'm going to appreciate it even more (laughs) there you go yeah um i am all out of notes on this movie do you have anything else uh no we covered everything that i had and a lot more so yeah. i mean i i think uh if this dead horse that is lee winnell's invisible man 2020 has not been beaten enough we beat it a little bit more today yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully we hopefully we uncovered some little uh secrets and trivia things and observations that people listening maybe didn't pick up on the uh, previous times they've watched it because i'm sure not a lot of people have seen it as many times as i have yeah and um a lot of people also don't 
maybe sit down and watch movies like this the same way that you and I do. So um, I will say as much as I love doing this show and, you know, tearing down these movies and talking about themes and uh, all the fun aspects of these movies, I will say it really does ruin my movie experience sometimes because I can't turn off that side of my brain a lot. So I'm sitting there, especially if it's the first time I've watched a movie, I'm not sitting there watching it for the pure enjoyment of watching it. I'm already tearing it apart in my head. Um, that Yeah, no, I mean, I relate 100%. And, and, and that's the thing that I miss about the movies is because when I'm in a movie theater, the immersion typically removes, turns that part of my brain yes. off. So Tone is someone who is excellent at sitting down at a movie and immediately knowing what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Like he, he's really good at knowing, guessing the beats. Um, and he knows the language, I think, of the genre better than either of us do. Um, and, and I consider us all pretty knowledgeable on it. So um, he's really good at that. I am awful at it. I will walk out of movies if we've seen them in the theater and they'll point stuff out to me and I'll be like, I did not even pick up on that. I was <laughs> completely surprised by the obvious plot twist. Um, but when I'm at home, I'm the exact same way for me. A lot of the time it's like, it feels like homework and I have to remind myself that I do it because I'm so passionate about films yes. and I'm so passionate about how they're made that I wouldn't want it another way. Mm -hmm. Like I, I love the fact that I know so much about how, what goes in, into making movies and I can pick even in movies that are made by who I consider experts, I can pick out the things that I think worked and didn't work. Mm -hmm. And I can really, and to me at the end of the day, it makes me either enjoy the movies that are excellent much more because I know everything that went into them and everything that makes them fantastic. And it helps me kind of put films that I kind of enjoyed, but maybe would never go watch again in that category. And, you know, it, it, it to me, at the end of the day, yeah, I totally see where you're coming from. Um, and it is kind of a uh, catch-22 when it comes to doing the kind of thing that we do. Is like People ask, do you ever get sick of horror movies? Do you ever get sick of just tearing things apart? So yeah, sometimes. But I try my best. And then uh, especially with this, like having seen it so many times, uh, it was tough for me to sit back and just enjoy it without really picking everything apart beat by beat. Um, but that's partially also why I wanted to do a movie that I had seen so many times. Yeah. Because I knew... Yeah, I'd be able to come into this like pro largely unprepared, <laughs> which I did, which I did intentionally. Um, I feel like I work better, like, you know, improv on the fly with this kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I was very tempted to sit down and just treat it like homework mm -hmm. and pick every scene apart. And I finally had to put my phone down and say, just watch the movie. You know, uh, you're not even going to make it through the whole thing before you have to do this conversation. So, <laughs> um, yeah, totally get where you're coming from, though. But hopefully people enjoy that we that we do this. I mean, I, the last thing that I want is for people to think that I'm or that either of us or any of us is hating on movies or that because we criticize or have nitpicks that it means we dislike the movie or shitting on anybody involved. Because really, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't love movies. That's a, that's exactly it. that you hit it right there on the head. I mean. We do. We love movies. I, I have been a movie fan for as long as I can remember, all the way back to a little being a little kid outside playing in the yard, pretending I was an actor starring in movies. I've won 13 Oscars, by the way, just so you know. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I've had this lifelong love and appreciation of film and television. 
And that's why I do enjoy talking about it. And it's not because, and if I do pick apart on a film or, you know, nitpick here and there or talk about something I don't like, it doesn't mean I don't like the film in general. Uh, it just, it means that I'm passionate about what I believe in or what I think could be. And I just want to share that opinion. This is all opinion based. This is all, yeah. this, is, this is an op-ed. We're not doing this as facts we're not, we're not you know film students we're not professional film critiques or anything like that we are movie fans sharing our opinion and love of movies and that's where oh, it needs to be i don't know where you're coming from because i think that our opinion is the definitive <laughs> opinion on lee Winnell's the invisible man 2020 that came out what nine months ago <laughs> and we're, we're just now giving you guys the definitive opinion it, it, it took great. a while to process it took a while yeah well, I have thoroughly enjoyed having you come on the show, Anthony. I appreciate the uh, love and thought you put into this movie. I know we had been talking about doing this movie for a while, um, and I'm glad we finally were able to sit down and do it. I can't wait to have you back on again eventually to talk about another movie uh, that we're both passionate about. Yeah, like I said earlier, this was exciting for me because it gave me an opportunity to I really don't get to do this as much as I would like. And I tend to be the one who goes on John and I go on forever when we're really into something on the show. And tone's always the one that's like, guys, wrap time. up, <laughs> wrap up time. Um, and so to be able to just sit with you and do a one-on-one -on -one and really just go as long as we wanted to on this movie, I was so looking forward to. And then obviously having followed your show and knowing what the format was like and hearing other people guest on and stuff, I was just, you know, this is something different. You know, mm -hmm. I, I love, that it's different from our show and it's different from other shows. And it really is a great way to much in the way that we do on our show, not just pick apart the movie scene by scene, but you know, talk about what puts, what makes this movie in every aspect from the acting to the directing, to the writing, to the things that, you know, um, we hadn't even thought about until this most recent watch. So yeah, it was great for me to be here. Um, I would love if, all of us could get together and do an episode together at some point. Oh, that would be a fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure that would be uh, an absolute shit show, but we would laugh our asses off. So I honestly can't wait. <laughs> I, I'm all for, I'm all for shit shows. Yeah, we'll have to come up um, with a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think I think the longer that we don't collaborate on a big episode like that, the more people are going to expect it from us. So I think we just yeah, we do like this movie did and we really drag out the tension and then we just come out with an episode that's turned up to 11 and uh, just knock it out of the park with something crazy. But I think people are really going to dig this episode that we just did here today. Um, oh, I think so too. And I want to say you did a fantastic job fitting in with the spirit of this episode and the fact that, yes, we came here to talk about Invisible Man, but you had no problem going off on our little tangents where we talked about MCU and stuff like that because you, you're familiar with my show. We go off on these tangents very easily i kind of feel bad i just released tucker and dale versus evil and i didn't give anybody any fair warning that the end of it was a huge star wars talk well um, um <laughs> as someone who is in a podcast that has done entire like two and a half hour episodes on on well the most recent star wars movie um yeah. which we don't need to go into but um, I haven't listened to your episode yet because I haven't actually seen Tucker and Dale versus evil. So I'm going to check it out and then I'm going to listen to your episode. Um, and I really actually do want to hear the star Wars talk um, at the end. So I think you'll have some opinions on it. Uh, it starts out talking about lightsaber battles. That's all I'm going to tell you. Okay. Gotcha. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to hearing the episode and I'm really looking forward to 
uh, hearing this because if anybody knows anything about me, um, I love hearing the sound of my own voice. So, <laughs> <laughs> see, I hate it. I hate it. Everybody tells me they like hearing my voice, and I'm just like, really? You oh, have it's like nails on a chalkboard. You have just the perfect podcast voice. I have to say, it's it's just very clear. It just rings out from the rooftops. Mine. Uh, you know, my voice is, I, I still sound like I'm going through puberty half the time. Um, and I end every sentence like it's a question. Um, but I've been doing it long enough now with, with the guys that I've gotten used to it and I've edited enough episodes yeah. and I've posted enough clips that if I was still sick of the sound of my voice, I would not be able to do the job that I'm doing. So I had to get used to it and just embrace the, the gift that I don't know. No, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. It, it's all the encouragement from everybody who's like, you know, I, we love hearing you talk and stuff like that. That's one of the main reasons I continue to do this. Uh, you know, one person has gone as far as say you have a nice, sexy, sultry voice. And I'm like, oh, yes, no, yeah, I do. I do like that. Thank I'd you. have to agree with that. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I just recorded a little clip for uh, our friends over a podcast on Elm Street, you know, kind of promoing our October um our october feature mm -hmm. and i i dropped i dropped my voice down to a nice lower register and i'm just talking and uh i tried to be as sinister sounding as i could and i guess it came off that way because mark was just like yes perfect that's <laughs> it that is it uh so yeah uh, i just recorded mine for them too and um i i tried to spice it up a little bit but now i i now that i know that you like lowered your voice and did a thing i really wish i had gone in with like a michael Can my michael can impression i should have just been like I'm Michael Caine, and we're going to have an episode <laughs> the size of a tangerine. Um. <laughs> That's funny because I tried a British accent with mine at first, and it just sounded awful. Dude, our, awful. our Nolan episode on Patreon, patreon.com slash porcelain peak for anybody interested. Um, give us money. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ch Chuck here is a lovely, lovely patron. Um, if you haven't listened to our Nolan episode I yet, um, it's almost entirely us doing shitty Michael Caine impressions. So <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's not that shitty. <laughs> All right, Anthony. Well, I do uh, want to go ahead and start wrapping this up. So guys, thank you for joining us on this wonderful adventure through invisible man. Uh, stay tuned because we have more of Chuck goes horror happening this month. And I've got another great one lined up after this. You're just going to have to wait and see what it is. Anthony, thank you again for joining. Awesome, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. I cannot wait to hear the episode. And it was really good to go to the movies with Chuck, even if it was virtually. Yes. And maybe one day when all this is over and California is not on fire and we don't have coronavirus, I will make it back out to California because I did live there for two and a half years down in San Diego. And we could all meet up and actually do this in person. I'm actually, I'm actually very tentatively planning a Disney trip for when the world is not burning down for all of us podcast people. I already talked to the horror horrify podcast guys about it and they're all on board. So when this shit clears up, we're going to head head that down, we're going to head down to Disney, hit the haunted mansion and we're going to paint that there you go. we're going to paint that shit neon green. <laughs> <laughs> all right guys, well you heard it here first and then uh like I said, thank you for joining us on this adventure and stay safe out there, wear your masks. If you're out in California, stay away from the fire and as always I'll see you at the movies.